Farzi, we were just down in Erie for the second time in two weeks. And you know why the food just tastes better in Erie? The grease? No, in the oh, wise okay. words of Gilbert Gottfried, food always tastes better when someone else is paying for it. That was a little Sherry Bassett. I tried a Gilbert Gottfried. I couldn't get it. But rest in peace to Gilbert Godfrey. That's all I had to say. Well done. Very timely. And I was going to say the same thing. Was that Gilbert Gottfried or was that Sherry Basson? It was more so Sherry Basson, I think. Yeah, Gilbert Gottfried. I, I don't know if I could even do it justice. Like, I don't think anyone can, can they? No, I don't think no. so. He was a unique character and he was his own character. And oh. yes, RIP after a long illness to Gilbert Gottfried. And it's yeah. funny you do the Gottfried slash Basson impression. We should give a shout out to our colleague in London, Mike Stubbs, who calls games with Jim Van Horn for London radio, a couple of the best. We love them. You know, we love everything about going to London, except, well, no, except the games, because, yeah, you know, they usually go the wrong way, depending on which team you're uh, calling the games for. Anyway, uh, love those guys. And, and Mike was listening to our broadcast, I guess, from Erie on this past Monday night. And we were replaying that Sherry Basson part of it anyway, the Sherry Basson podcast. And um, Mike knows what's what in this league. And he knows how, I think, important a recording that is going to be many, many years in the future. Because Sherry has been in this game a long time and he's an absolute certified beauty. So Mike sent us a message enjoying the stories with Sherry Basson. If you haven't heard that podcast yet, holy Hannah, you best get yourself back and check out OHL stories with Sherry Basson. I was thinking about that actually in the shower today, maybe TMI, but I was like, how do we get more people to listen to that episode? Because it was so good. And Bass has so many good stories and he just went on and on and on and on and on. And he he's been around for just so long that those are the type of interviews that we love because you, we really get the history that say 20 years down the line when Bass is no longer with us and you and I are maybe out of the league, other people can still go back and hear the OHL history that Sherry Basson told so perfectly well on this podcast in the past. Yeah. So I just, I, it was great to talk to him. I mean, I know it's, it's our podcast, uh, but I hope the sense from the listeners, because my take on it is really what we're doing here is an audiobook of Ontario hockey league history, right? Cause get the beginning like this, where we're going to talk about what's going on in the league in the moment. But then the guests that we bring on are going to tell stories from sometimes many decades in the past. So it, it's pretty cool. And uh, and hopefully the, the listeners are getting that that same reward, if you'll call it that, from this. It really is the, the story of the league. And we've had guests in the past that have talked about some of the positives. And we've had guests in the past that have talked about some of the negatives. And here we are again, 2022, dealing with some more negatives in the Ontario Hockey League. That we are before we get to those, because it's that's a really nice tee up for the things that we have. One of the things certainly we have to talk about here, but there's a story within the story of this podcast that I think we need to acknowledge. So first of all, thanks to Vince, who sent an email to Farwell and Pope at gmail.com and said, hey, how about some he Vince's listening from St. Catharines? Love that. Always let us know, by the way, Farwell and Pope at gmail.com or at underscore Chris Pope on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL on Twitter. Where are you listening from? Who do you want to hear from? And Vince sent the email to farwellandpope at gmail.com said, hey, how about somebody from Niagara Connections? With Niagara Connections, we had the, the Flyers twice. We got the Thunder. We got St. Catherine's teepees, and we could go on and on. So <laughs> it's funny. Without talking to each other, Popper and I had the same idea. We found Jason Clark, 
and you look at Jason Clark's hockey DB profile and you're like, this is a guy we got to have on former Niagara Falls Thunder. I was about to call him a flyer. Sorry, Clarky. former Niagara Falls Thunder and racked up almost 500 PIMS in one season. In fact, later in his pro career, he did get 500 plus PIMS. We're like, this is the kind of guy that's going to have awesome stories. So we, we both find out from each other that we had started down this path. And I'm like, Popey, don't worry. I'm a step ahead of you. I must have started looking 12 hours ahead. Already tracked him down. <laughs> he used to, he used to uh, coach a team, uh, the Capital City Canadians, uh, up, up near Ottawa. And now he's coaching out in the queue. And it's going to be awesome. And so I reached out and Jason Clark was like, Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come on the podcast. I'd love to tell some stories. And so the second email to just firm things up and I said, OK, well, here are some of the stories because he had asked, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, here, you know, let's let's talk about this, this and this. And he's like, oh, well, that's that's the wrong Jason Clark. So the Jason Clarks, both with an E on the end of their name, born a year apart. But the Jason Clark that I first touched base with is now coaching. Yeah, with the uh, Acadie Bathers Teton and, and gunning for first place, I might, I might add. And then there's that other Jason Clark. So what you're getting in this podcast, the, the long story before the stories, plural, is you're going to hear from both of these guys, the Jason Clark that played in the Ontario Hockey League and, and the Jason Clark that played uh, in the not Ontario Hockey League, but is now coaching in the Canadian Hockey League. And so from Jason Clark, the coach, you're going to get basically like a coach's clinic. He's got a really interesting perspective on the game. And from Jason Clark, the player, oh boy, are you going to get some stories about, well, maybe a little bit of a, a dark side, certainly some cautionary tales. But anyway, this is your bonus. That's why it's called OHL Stories with Jason Clarks, because there's more than one. And they were bo- they've, they've both been mistaken for each other before, and they were both great about it, which is kind of awesome. So Vince, you're getting two for your money here today. I also just want to point out that that may be also just be a quick lesson to anybody who wants to get into broadcasting. Sometimes you find the wrong guy. Well, it's not it's, the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. We all make mistakes. It's true. And we <laughs> have human. had, yep. We have had guys say, uh, sorry, not the right. Yeah. Chris yep. Pope. But in this case, it's so funny. And, and we both look like this is the guy you got, right? <laughs> yeah. This is the guy I got because it, it just makes sense. That would be the trajectory right out of the O you know, capital city Canadians, and then off to the Quebec major junior hockey league, not the case, but you're going to get to hear from them both. And and I think you'll really enjoy stories from both guys. So all of that said to your point earlier, Chris, and it stays in the same region. Let's stick with that in the uh, Niagara region of the Ontario hockey league and the ice dogs organization. And Oh boy, Oh boy, Oh boy. Three years removed from having been sanctioned by the league for recruiting violations and a $250,000 fine and the surrendering of some draft picks. The ice dogs are in perhaps the hottest water that they've been in yet. And by the ice dogs, I mean the Burks who are the owners. Quick note that this podcast is brought to us by Waterloo crime stoppers. And that's exactly what David branch did when he suspended (laughs) both Burks. Fact. Um, I've said it on air and I'll, I'm sorry to Farwell and anyone else who was listening to our pregame show the other day, but you might hear the same thing here. I just think that we all know this is just the tip of the iceberg. If they're talking like that in a group chat, what are they saying when they're alone? What are they saying to their players? What are they saying routinely 
around those offices. There is a laundry list of reasons why they shouldn't be in charge. We've had players go in there and say, trade me, I'm not playing for you anymore. They dressed 16 players once this season. Eight of them were rookies for call-ups. They've had players in their organization in the past that have reportedly been told they're being traded only to find out that they're not being traded. They've had rumors of reaching out to players on other teams saying we're trading for you and then not trading for them. There are plenty of things on the hockey side alone that probably show you that they don't belong in this league. But when you talk like that, there is zero place for it in this league. I said on the broadcast that if a player were to say the things that they said, I would give them a longer leash just because the players in this league 16 to 20, the emotions take over on the ice. Sometimes I understand it. I don't think there's a place for it in the game. They should be suspended. They should have to go through treatment and education to become a better person. But I give them a little bit longer of a leash because they're not mature enough at that age to be in the same position that the Burks are. These are role models for the players on their team. They're role models for people in the community. And I'm sorry, but to be a part of the greatest junior league in the world is a privilege. And when you're continually talking like that and using the words they used and and over a highlight video, like what happens when they lose a game or they get a bad call? What are they saying then? This is over a highlight video. I think both Burks and that, sorry, that statement that they released, absolute garbage. I'm just going to say it. Like it's absolute garbage. They basically said, well, we didn't say anything racist. So that makes it better. If you rob a bank, do you say, oh, I didn't murder anybody? Who cares? You did something wrong. Own up to it. It it says a lot about them that they didn't just own it. And I don't know what you can say if you own it, because there's no reason for it. There's no explanation that you were talking like that. The fact that they said it in a group chat with the team members and members of that organization, I can't imagine what some of the people in that organization are feeling when they feel that they can't speak out against that with fear of replications. And luckily someone leaked the chat and David Branch did the only thing David Branch could do. And that was get them out of this league. And I think the league is better off for it because they have to take a long look in the mirror and try to figure out what kind of man they are. So this WhatsApp chat that was leaked, I'm sure you all know the story by now, uh, contained both a homophobic slur and extremely derogatory misogynistic language towards women some of whom are members of the ice dogs organization and were part of this chat that got leaked so again to your point earlier popper if this is what they're saying on a chat who knows what they're saying away from the chat in the heat of the moment in a game and so on and so forth and you're right again the 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 statement that was issued afterwards was incredibly bad like it just took a bad situation and somehow made it even worse because the argument or the defense seemed to be well we didn't say anything racist so you checked the misogyny box you checked the homophobic box but you didn't check the racist box so we're supposed to give you some kind of pass two-year ban the uh billy and joey we should be clear here head coach and general manager minority owners Uh, are not eligible for reinstatement until June of 2024. And it's another $150,000 in fines on top of the 250 from just a few years ago. So it's been an expensive run. But but to your point on 
the role modeling and the privilege that it is to be in this league. And and you and I talked about your position earlier, where you're going to give a player a little bit more leash. And I see where you're coming from on that. What's important for me to take away from this is that these guys are, to use your word before, and I think it's a fair word, role models. They are managers and, and leaders in this game, in the greatest junior hockey league in the world. And they are making it okay for this kind of language to be used, for people to be treated in this manner. And it is a problem within the greater hockey culture that we have to root out. So I'm glad that David Branch is doing this the way that he has. I think he's come down as hard as he possibly can. And I hope that everybody around the league, players right on up through staff on teams in all 20 Ontario Hockey League markets, are taking notice because we do have to root this out from the ground so that 20 years from now, we're not having a conversation about somebody saying anything even remotely close to this. Kudos to the person who leaked the chat. Everything we've been hearing since its release is that what we have seen is only the tip of the iceberg. It's incredible to me the number of people, and they're not exactly wallflowers, who have come forward to talk about other things that happened to them when they were interning with the team or in any way associated with the team. It's, it's a really ugly look. It, it speaks to the character of the individuals, I'm sorry to say, and we'll see where we're at in two years time. But I, I think the league has handled this as best it could. And I think it's now up to the rest of us to, to recognize the message that was sent by the league in terms of what is and what is absolutely not okay and to be better as humans as hockey people moving forward. Yeah, I think uh, we'll see where we're at in two years. We're going to be at this exact same spot, and that is with them not in the league. I don't think they're ever going to find themselves back in this league, unfortunately. Um, for them, fortunately, for the culture, to be perfectly honest, because, listen, this this league, as I said earlier, there's some black eyes on this league in the past. We don't have to talk about them. Everyone knows about them. We hear them on the podcast from time to time. We know the issues. but you can't just allow them to come back in two years because they took some courses. They're, they're throwing you can play nights in Niagara and then turning around and talking like that in a chat. So clearly the education that is going into these organizations in the league aren't hitting home, isn't hitting home. And there needs to be something done about that. And I think there will be in the future at some point because the scathing article in, I think it was the globe and mail about the culture of hockey and the Burks and the CHL. And I even think about uh, Rachel Dury, I think is her last name. I follow yep. her on Twitter. I'm not sure the pronunciation. So I apologize to Rachel if I said it incorrectly, but uh, with the Canucks um, now. Yeah. Yeah. And she said that she went for an interview with the Burks and they didn't like her saying that she wasn't going to work for free. And then they called her a derogatory word towards females as she was leaving. Like, how does that happen? And how does it continue to happen? But that, that's part of the, the the article in the Globe and Mail and something that this league is continuously trying to get out from under is that iron curtain over the league. The shh, don't tell anyone it's happening. Throw your you can play nights, but then say whatever you want in a group chat. And the league is doing things and certain teams are doing things to get away from that, be more transparent and be more. What's the word I'm looking for? More, um, more 20th, 21st century. because. Yeah. Like it, it's time that we all get better and it's time that we all, you know, 
think about the words that we're saying and how they affect other people. And clearly the Burks haven't matured enough to understand that. Yeah. Let's all be a little bit more enlightened, shall we? Enlightened's a great word. Thank you. Out of the dark ages for sure. Hey, uh, I got, the- I just, just for the record, I got work to do too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not standing on my high horse here. Okay. We can all be better. Like we can all be better, but have I used words like that in the past when I was younger? Absolutely. But I've learned to grow and I understand that the words I say to someone have, they they can hurt that person and they can hurt them deeply and it can be a life-changing experience. I've learned that. They obviously have not. Yeah. Let's all be better. It's a great way to look at it. And we, of course, we all have grown and still have room to grow some more. And again, I hope the message being sent from the league here is strong enough that the rest of us are taking notice of where we're at as, as people. And again, specifically, because it's a problem within the culture of the game as hockey people. The other big story we get to talk about this week, which I'm really excited about, is, is far more uplifting. But just before we get to it, Popey, do you keep like a dish of keys? Like when you come home, is there like a dish for car keys by your front door by any there's chance? Not, there's not a dish, but I have a little hanger on the wall. and We got all of our car keys up there and there's like 20 keys, but yes. Interesting. Okay. So just, just a little, call this a public service announcement. It kind of comes out of nowhere, but I've, I've heard these stories about the car thieves are getting pretty smart, smarter than the people I think we just talked about with a certain hockey team in the OHL, but they can actually have these devices that they can come up to the front door of your house and open your car because whatever it is they've got can pick up the signal from your key fob. If it's too close to the door and all of a sudden they've got your car opened and started and they're taken off in your car and they never even have to go into your house or they don't have to have your keys to do it. I just like to correct myself. My keys are nowhere near my front door. <laughs> yeah. They are in Sorry. the back of the house, in the fridge. Until I saw this story, I had a, an old coffee mug. It was a big, like a big thing, like a soup mug, more like it. And it was sitting by the door and I like, I've moved it now because I don't want to say, listen, if they want my car, they're going to have my car. But I just, I just want you to know that this is the sort of thing that happens. And, and because of that, here's a great opportunity that we are able to present to you because that's the kind of guys we are on the OHL Stories podcast. You heard Popper already mention that our partner on this podcast is Waterloo Regional Crime Stoppers. And next Saturday, so not the Easter weekend, enjoy your long Easter weekend. And then the following weekend on Saturday, April the 23rd, a Waterloo Regional Crime Stoppers event is happening at the Tim Hortons out in the Deer Ridge area of Kitchener, right there along King Street East. And at 1030 on Saturday, April the 23rd, you can be there. Regional police will be there, Waterloo Regional Police for those in our immediate listening area. And they're going to be uh, selling key fob signal blockers so if anybody ever tried that they wouldn't be able to get the signal from your fob to get in your car when you're not there which as you know it's pretty handy for 20 bucks you get this key fob signal blocker and you're supporting the work of waterloo regional crime stoppers if you didn't know it's volunteer run they've got a volunteer board everything they do to pay out the money that they give away for people that provide tips that lead to arrests to solve crimes is all fundraised. So there's golf events, there's things like this on Saturday, April the 23rd. So just wanted to let you know that for 20 bucks, not only are you getting something that might keep your car in your driveway and your valuables in your own possession, but you're also helping out Waterloo Regional Crime Stoppers. You can find them online at waterloocrimestoppers.com. And on April the 23rd, it's a Saturday morning, 1030 at the Tim's in the Deer Ridge area. Join them for the key fob signal locker sale and you're helping support the work oh by the way if you see a crime in progress or you have a tip that might help lead to an arrest 
two, two, two tips. And, you know, out by that Tim Hortons on Deer Ridge, um, there's a lot of hotels out there. Will those hotels be filled at one point with junior hockey players from, say, Slovakia or Czech Republic or Czechia? Pardon me. See, learning. I like the way you led into this. And I would also throw out there a, a beautiful couple new hotels, newer hotels in the uh, Woolwich Township area. That's where we're at when we're in St. Jay, right? Yep. Anyway, uh, in the Woolwich Township area of Waterloo Region. So we had this conversation in the media room before a game not too long ago. And what we're talking about is the bid that the city of Kitchener and the city of London are working on jointly. That's right. Kitchener and London working together. Pretty awesome stuff to perhaps bring the 2023 World Junior Hockey Championships to those two junior hockey markets, London and Kitchener. So think this coming Christmas, essentially, the tournament that we all love so much could be played in London and Kitchener. Now, you brought up the hotels because this was part of our argument. And look, I'm a Kitchener kid. I was born and raised. I'll put my city up against any city in the country and in the world. I, I love the city. And I think that as a city, Kitchener, no offense, London, Forest City, you're just fine. But when you look at the accommodations, when you look at the transportation networks, I think the city has more to offer. Reality is, of course, when it comes to the biggest of the big games, so the gold medal game will be almost certainly competed for at Budweiser Gardens in London because when it comes to hockey facilities, as much as I love the Memorial Auditorium as an arena and maybe even as a hockey cathedral you can put more bums in more seats and you've got all the nice bells and whistles and it's shiny and new in London. But the beauty of this joint bid is that the centers are so close to one another. There are four other joint bids, including Ottawa and I think it's Hull, Quebec. Like think of how far apart these other centers are that are putting in bids. There are a couple out West and, and one down East as well. And I think the closest is the down East bid where the centers are three hours apart. You're talking an hour and 15 minutes door to door. Like I'm, I mean, door to door, city to city, you're like an hour on the 401, but you can go from one arena into the other arena in an hour and 15 minutes. So that means even if the gold medal game is being played in London and you're living in Kitchener, you're still an hour and 15 minutes from having your bum in the seat at the game for the gold medal uh, final. So I, I, I think this market, these two markets together make a ton of sense. And I really, really hope that Hockey Canada sees it the same way. Couldn't agree with you more. I think both those two markets, they give you a little bit of everything when it comes to the OHL and junior hockey. I think you have, as you put it perfectly, the hockey cathedral of the Memorial Auditorium. And then you have the little Scotiabank Arena down in London. So you get Nicely a little put, yeah. Right? So you get a little bit of both. Um, and I think that those two markets alone, you're talking about, two of the best junior markets in Canada, not let, not just Ontario. We're talking two of the best junior markets in Canada going together only an hour away in Southwestern Ontario. How do they not win? <laughs> like I truthfully don't know. I'm thinking about, it. I'm like, there's no way that they can't win. Right. Well, this is, I mean, again, you talk about Southwestern Ontario and I start thinking about a, a few things. So one I'll mention right away. And as we all know, in the past 15 years, the two cities between them have hosted three Memorial Cups and, and very successfully. The city of London is just coming off hosting a briar. Southwestern Ontario, everybody remembers the 1990 Memorial Cup between Oshawa and Kitchener. 
it was played in Hamilton and Cops Coliseum, which it was then called, was sold out. Why? Because everybody can get there. So Oshawa's coming in, Kitchener's coming in. Think of that 2011 final that we talk about so much when they were referring to the Hershey Center, what it was called then in Mississauga, as the Bayshore South. Because you could probably, like, you might as well have made it a parade. All the people coming from Gray County making the two and a half hour trip to Mississauga to watch their beloved attack. Fans, just think of the catchment area of junior hockey mad fans in Southern Ontario that are within easily two to two and a half hours of either London or Kitchener. It, I Honestly, based on that alone, I don't know how this market doesn't get it. Yeah. And you think of all the scouts around the GTA, two hours, you're out of game. If you want to go watch a game in London, you're an hour from the States. If you go across Sarnia, you're two hours. If you go across Windsor, it's really a, you can't lose you i really i really don't think there's any other bid that could come close to kitchener and london going in together for it and i'm with you i think london will get the a a pool and then kitchener will get the b pool regardless it's the best junior hockey players in the world playing in kitchener and london and i think if you can showcase both those markets how do you not yeah i had a chance to check out some of the games when in 2009 when it was in ottawa and I, I saw one Canada game and then a handful of other games, but it's the World Junior Hockey Championship. You, you don't mind going to watch Sweden play Finland or whatever might be the matchup. And, and don't forget, yeah, if, if there's a game that involves Canada or a team or a player that you care about and you're not in the market where the game's being played, again, it's, it's, not, it's not far away to get to the other market. So I think it's great. Finances are obviously going to be... Um, a, a factor here, but what what's happening is, as you probably know, is that the championships were to be played in Russia. They've been removed from their hockey Canada. It's not even that these markets, the five that are putting in bids, decided themselves they wanted to bid for it. Hockey Canada went to them and said, "What can you do? Like put together a package, and by the way, put it together quick. We're going to know by the end of this month, probably even sooner, who's going to end up as the host because they've only got eight months now to pull this all together." So there's going to be some, I, I can say this much from what I've learned from talking to people around this. Let's just call it some wiggle room. You and I have talked before, Chris, about the Memorial Cup and how some markets don't even bother bidding on it anymore because there's such a financial commitment that must be made by the host city. They say, we're going to guarantee the CHL this much money and then hope to make more so that they don't lose money as a, as a market and as a host. I can tell you, in a high level way, that's not going to happen. This nobody's going to be well. The only entity eating some money on this is going to be Hockey Canada, but they they can't have it in Russia, and they want to bring it back to the grassroots with a junior hockey market. So again, I think London Kitchener, bring it on. There's no reason I can see that it shouldn't be here. Completely agree. Ready for our guest? Absolutely. Guests. Guests. <laughs> guests. Uh, first up is the Jason Clark. We got second. <laughs> we thought we were getting poor, oh, poor Jason Clark, the coach in, in the queue. He's such a good guy too. Anyway, uh, Jason Clark one was a member of the Niagara Falls Canucks and then went on to a long pro career as Farwell already alluded to. Yes, he was a fighter and he talks a lot about uh, how that has affected his life in his later years and even his relationship with his children and their love of sport. And then we get to Jason Clark too, who was gracious enough to join our podcast, even when we mistaken him for Jason Clark one. So to Jason Clark two, thank you very much. Keep things going with the 
Titan. And we hope to see you in the Memorial Cup in the near future. But here is our OHL stories with Jason Clark's for Waterloo Regional Crime Stoppers. Make sure to head down Tim Horton's Deer Ridge uh, on the 23rd at 10.30. Get your key fob blocker. I got to tell you, as we start, Jason, this is a bit of a backstory here, but a roundabout way of tracking you down because I thought I had tracked you down only to find out that the Jason Clark, also spelled with an E, currently coaching in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, is not you, but the two of you, like, still involved in the game and yeah, born a year uh, apart. And does it happen to you before? Everyone thinks it's me and everyone thinks him as me. So it's kind of vice versa all the time. So that's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's weird. And I've never met him before. I've never met him. And uh, I've talked to him on the phone, but uh, <laughs> other than that, never met him. So yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of weird like that for sure. Has this been going on for a while then? It has. It's, uh, I tell you, probably since uh, I quit playing hockey, everyone thought I started coaching, which I did, but not at the level that the other Jason Clark is doing. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, like I live in Quebec City. I'll go to the game. This is, well, how come you're not coaching? You're supposed to be on the bench. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's the other one. There's, uh, yeah, it's it's vice versa. So it's, uh, and the emails I get too for the people that want to play for my program. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 funny like that. Though. It's okay. <laughs> I like I think, this shirt, but I don't think Farwell and I can support the hat you're wearing for our YouTube viewers. Oh my here, camp, yeah, I got my, I love my shirt too. It's a, yeah, it's a nice yeah. shirt. Yeah, for sure. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, unfortunately, you have the wrong quarterback. Chris is a uh, New Orleans Saints fan. I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so you can understand why we might have an issue with that. For sure, <laughs> and I, I'm a bad. I, I don't really like football. I jumped on the bandwagon when uh, Brady went there. So uh, before I was a Patriot fan, now I'm a Buccaneer. So I won't lie. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Jason, what was it like growing up in Coburg? Uh, it was fun. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's a great little town on the on the water. I'm sure you guys know where it is. And, uh, you know, uh, growing up, just playing uh, double B hockey. You know what I mean? I, I, I didn't play uh, all-star hockey till I was in Pee Wee. Uh, my parents really didn't have the money for it. And I didn't really – I played to play with my, my buddies. And uh, – and then after that, uh, it just happened to be one of the, the Bantam teams needed a defenseman. And uh, they called me up and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Went on to play there uh, uh, two years of Bantam and two years of Midget. And uh, won the uh, All-Ontario three years in a row in Coburg and, uh, and uh, ended up getting drafted in the OHL, which I didn't even know what the OHL was really in, in Coburg. I, I knew who the Peterborough Peets were and Oshawa Generals were obviously being in from that area, Belleville Bulls. And like I said, playing double B was never even my imagination to play any hockey past midget with my buddies and then uh, go work in the factory with my dad or my mom. And uh, like I said, uh, getting drafted and fortunate enough to play as long as I did uh, is pretty, it's pretty amazing. So when, when you reflect on that OHL experience, your, your first taste was just four games before you spent the rest of the season with Lindsay, but what was it like? stepping onto the ice in the Ontario hockey league with a team that, you know, you'd never even heard of prior to that, but when you get into that league. Like, it's funny, like when I, it was my draft year and I started getting calls from OHL scouts. I'm like, well, I don't even know what, how do you guys know who I am? Like we played in a double B center, we're playing like Baltimore, we're playing Port Hope, we're playing all these little towns. And then I, I actually at my draft year was at St. Mike's arena. And uh, I, I was supposed to go the night before and uh, talk to teams. And uh, I did. And I, I obviously, I talked to the kitchen Rangers uh, North Bay. I, I never ever talked to Niagara Falls. It was uh, I. My I am after all the interviews I had. I personally thought it was going to be Kitchener or Oshawa that was that was going to pick me. 
And then I was just sitting there and all of a sudden uh, Niagara Falls Thunder picked me in the fourth round. So it was like, oh, wow. Okay. I didn't even know, I knew where it was, but I didn't even know they had a team. So, you know what I mean? And then, uh, you know, come to the first training camp, you had Brad May there, Manny Legacy, Keith Primo was there for the year, uh, my first year. And uh, Andy Bezo and some big names were there. And uh, it was pretty amazing. That it was a really, you know, a big eye opener to go there. And uh, I went to camp there. I didn't train. I didn't do nothing. Like I said, I was a kid from Cobra. had no idea what junior hockey was about. And uh, so I went there. I didn't touch a weight all summer. Just skated a couple of times. I went to camp and uh, it was an eye opener with uh, with George Burnett there. And, uh, you know, doing the bench press. I think I did the bench press like five times, maybe like 135 is embarrassing. And uh so, like I said, then uh, they said to me, you know, go down and work in junior B and Lindsay and uh, work hard and uh, get in the gym and uh, practice your game because I was never really coached in Cobra. You know, their, their mom and dad's coaching and, and my brother coached me one year. So, you know, it wasn't as if I had training, you know, up until like the guys that play AAA in Toronto and all the big organizations. Um, I just happened to, for some reason, catch the eye of the OHL and, uh, you know, very fortunate to play in the, you know, best junior league in the world. And, like I said, uh, going to Niagara Falls and, uh, you know, the experience I had in Niagara, you know, great people, great arena. You know, uh, like I said, the teammates were great. And uh, like I said, I couldn't ask for any more for sure. 185, you said, on that bench? Uh, no, I don't even think it was that. I think it was like no. 135. Yeah, it was 135. Okay. It wasn't something. Uh, yeah, it was uh, It was terrible. I think I did five max and people are looking at me. I don't think I did one chin up. So it was, uh, like I said, I did nothing in the summer because like I said, I was really unaware of what junior hockey was coming from Coburg and what it took to, you know, get drafted and, and be there. And then another thing is to stay in the OHL as well. So uh, I learned really hard, uh, fast and I, I had a, some good teachers in junior B and uh, was fortunate to play with Jason Arnett uh, my uh, first year in junior B and Lindsay. And uh, I was his protector on the ice and uh, I lived with him in junior B and we became great friends and, uh, he tried to pull me to Oshawa when he got drafted uh, from Niagara, but that didn't work out. But like I said, uh, it, he really helped me a lot. Uh, Arnie did in, uh, in Lindsay with his play. And he was such a good player at a young age and I knew the hockey. Uh, he was well be, be beyond his years with uh, his knowledge of hockey and the way he played it. So it was so easy to play with him. And like I said, uh, I think I had like, you know, 60 or 70 points in 300 minutes in junior B my first year. And then I was fortunate to get called up for the four games in, in uh, Niagara. And like I said, uh, I just, I just really wanted. Uh, after being in junior B, I wanted to be in the OHL. Seeing what it took to be there and the and the lo- level of compete, it really intrigued me to to be there. And like I said, it was uh, it was phenomenal for sure. You mentioned that you were his protector. You played with a little bit of an edge, let's say. Um, yeah. But <laughs> you, you did five, yeah, a little bit. The the five reps the first year. How many did you do the second year after your year in junior? You know what? I, I actually hired my parents, hired me a, bur- a personal trainer, and I had a boxing uh, coach and everything in Cobra. So I think I went up to like uh, 20, 25, and then I actually did like uh, 15 uh, pull ups uh, where I couldn't even pull myself up the first year. So, uh, like I said, it was uh, an eye opener. And like I said, coming from Coburg, you know, we, uh, you know, Steve Smith is from there, played for the Edmonton Oilers. And then after me, obviously, Justin Williams is from Coburg as well. So, uh, like before me, there really wasn't uh, anyone to tell me what to expect in the OHL or what to expect going into camp. And uh, like I said, I walked in and, uh, you know, there was no ice and had all the training stuff on the the old Niagara Falls arena. And I was like, what is this stuff? And like, I got to the bench, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to kill myself here. So, like I said, I, I went to Junior B, worked hard, and then uh, that summer worked extra hard as well. So you you get into this league and as a protector, uh, ran the numbers. They're not too hard to put together. 131 OHL games, 528 OHL 
Pims, uh, suffice to say you weren't afraid of anyone on the ice? Well, for sure. You're, you know what? Anyone to say that they're not afraid of their fighting is, is that they're, they're lying to you. You know, any it doesn't matter if it's a small guy, big guy, or whatever position you're in. It's never comfortable to fight. I don't know too many people that are comfortable with the fighting on the ice. I never was. Um, I, I, I did it because I knew that's how I would stay in the OHL and play in the OHL. And then obviously after the OHL came my pro career. But like I said, uh, you know, it was installed in me. If I wanted to play, I had to play with an edge. And um, so I did, you know what I mean? And like I said, uh, yeah, when it came down to it, I would fight anybody and protect my players or, you know, uh, uh, Todd Simon was on the ice. We had to protect him or whoever else is out there. So I, I do my role, you know, my, my first year, what it was going to be for sure. Did you, obviously you didn't know much about the OHL, but in that first year in junior B, did you know you were going to be a fighter in junior B? Uh, when I went to camp, they told me that I, if I, you know, I wasn't the best skater and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, basically the, the staff told me if I, I wanted to play at that level that I'd have to bring an edge to my game. Did they tell me I had to fight. No, but you know, back then you knew what an edge was, you know what I mean? So, you know, when I went to junior B and like I said, coming from Coburg, you know, I never fought once on the ice. We had our full cages on and, and things of that nature. So going to junior B and then, you know, we take our helmets off the fight and, uh, for some reason, I, I ate it up. I loved it. You know, the fans were cheering me, and it, it just kind of grew from there that I, I came accustomed to, okay, this is my job, and this is what I have to do to play junior B this year, and this is what I'm going to have to do to, to be a, an OHL player as well. So, you know, and there was a lot of tough guys in, in back then in the days in 91, 92, 93. And when I played, there were some very tough guys like Atomsky in, in London, and uh, I think his name was Chris Puma that played for Kitchener, the defenseman. Uh, had some big battles with him and he was a tough guy and you know uh you know you know Dennis Bombie and in um, Matt Johnson and Peter Burrell. so he had some pretty tough kids uh you know, not kids but guys back then and uh you had to learn uh, to fight pretty well and then look after yourself for sure you talk about those fans in Niagara Falls Jason and and I think we mentioned this in the email when we first reached out you are here by request of fans of this podcast and the Niagara Falls Thunder. They're like, you got to get a former Thunder on here. You got to get yeah. a former Niagara Falls player. What, how, how did they take to the team and particularly a, a guy that played the way that you did? You know, playing in the Niagara Falls is, you know, I don't know. I can't speak for any other place, but it, it was incredible. Like we were taken care of so well. The ownership was great. Uh, the fans loved us. We'd go to restaurants. We'd eat for free, you know, whatever you wanted. They, they embraced it. It was a... It was a small rink. Uh, oh, excuse me. Sorry, you're a popular uh, guy. Yeah. Um, it was a, a small rink like the old Boston Garden. You know what I mean? It was uh, people didn't like to come in there. You'd have, you, you know, you had myself, Dennis Maxwell, and uh, running around there, Tom Moores. It was a small rink that we uh, that had there. So it was, uh, like I said, Niagara, and the area is great for itself, too. You know, you, you have the falls there and everything that went, went around with it. And, you know, like I said, uh, great teammates. And uh, it, was, it was an unbelievable place to play for sure. Had you been to Niagara Falls before as a kid? Because going from Coburg and walking into Niagara, I'd imagine you're like, what is this place? Oh, yeah. I remember going to see the falls because I used to play soccer and we used to go to, to New York to play. And so we passed by the falls. And like I said, I'd never really been there. And, you, and you're right, you know, going there the first year in camp, I was an eye opener. Like I said, there was 14, I think we had 14,000 people in Coburg. And, you know, I mean, going into Niagara Falls, I remember driving through Toronto and going down to QEW and, I'm like, what, what am I doing? Like, you know what I mean? And, and like I said, it's uh, it was a big change. But like I said, when I got there, the my billet family was great. Um, coaching staff, everybody was great. They welcomed all of us. So it was, it was it was a good experience. You played for a guy in Niagara Falls who is still in this game today. 
Uh, both Popey and I are big fans of George Burnett to this day. And I can only imagine that you were just the kind of player that George liked to have on his team. But what was he like as a head coach? You know what? He, he helped me become a player, a complete player. You know what I mean? Like, he, you know, he's one that, you know, I had to play with an edge, but I had to play the game as well. Uh, and you're right, you know, for George still to be coaching now in Guelph is a testament to how many years he's been around because usually coaches are two and three or out or whatever. And the longevity of George to be still in the OHL, like I said, at this level is, is something to speak of for him. Like he, like I said, he's a, he's a hard coach. Like, he, you know, when it came time to curfews and, and things of that, he, he was tough. You know I mean? And that's, we needed that because obviously being in Niagara, you go across the border and come back. And it, so it was, uh, you know, the bar situation was right there. So um, but as a coach, as X and O's, he taught play, pe- people how to be better people on and off the ice. And on on ice, obviously spoke for himself, spoke for himself. Like he worked with all the players, and uh, uh, we had Randy Hall as an assistant coach here with George in my my first year. And uh, like I said, it was uh, George is a great teacher, and that's why he's still in the game now. Coming into the league, you just said that you didn't know much about it. Did was there anyone on that Niagara Falls team that kind of took you under their wing? You know what, Brad made it, uh, yeah. you know, in my first training camp, uh, he, uh, he, I think he kind of knew my role and uh, honestly didn't know who Brad May was. I had no clue who he was going, like, couldn't tell you. So, you know, going into camp and everyone's like, you know, Brad made this and that and they drafted by Buffalo. And I'm like, okay, uh, that's kind of who I like. So uh, my first training camp, I stayed with him and Andy Beasel uh, at their, at their bill. And Paul Louse was there too. I forget another one. And um so yeah, Brad, you know, helped me out a lot. And uh, like I said, it, it was funny. He was playing for the Vancouver Canucks and I was actually a, a doorman in Montreal. And uh, he happened to come in, in the bar that I was working at. And uh, my owner came, came and said, hey, uh, the Vancouver Canucks are here. So I'm like, well, I know one, I'm Brad Mace. I went right up to Brad and we talked pretty much all the night uh, and hadn't seen him since I was in Niagara Falls. So, uh, and sometimes I see him on Instagram. We talk on Instagram and things of that nature. So yeah, like he's a... He's a genuine guy. Like he's a, he's a great guy, uh, Brad. And like I said, uh, you know, for what he done on the in the NHL and OHL as well, is uh, speaks volumes for the type of guy he is as well. You know, I I knew him for three minutes. We crossed paths at one point in our broadcasting careers, Brad May and I. And I was going to bring it up because he came across to me, Jason, as like one of the nicest humans you'll ever want to meet. Was he? What was he like as a teenager? Uh, unbelievable. The same yeah. way. Like I don't think he's changed. Like he's he's genuine. Like he. My nephew saw him at a, in my, my nephew still lives in Coburg and uh, he went to a, some uh, thing in Whippy with the hockey ally afraid he was there and Brad May was there. And uh, my nephew Carter went up to him and said, Hey, uh, my uncle's Jason Clark. And right away. Yeah. I play with him in Niagara Falls. And it's like, you know, the guy played how many years in the NHL won Stanley cup. And, you know, he doesn't have, you know, how does he remember Jason Clark from Niagara Falls? You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, like that, but he does. And then that's the way Brad was. And I remember him in camp that, he was hello to everyone, welcome, everything, you know, and, and the same as Keith Primo, he didn't play there, but, you know, Keith was at the meetings and stuff like that to introduce Niagara Falls and what was about to be a, a Thunder because he played there. And he was the same way. Keith Primo was, you know, welcome everyone. If you have any questions, let me know. But for me, Brad May was really the guy that I wanted to be after meeting him and the personality and the just the work ethic to see Brad after practice, like on the bike, like re- religious on the bike. Like we got, we would get bag skated and he would be on the bike. It wouldn't matter. He'd be doing the weight. So I, I saw that and that's how I wanted to be because, you know, Brad May's a, a great guy to, to follow for sure. You also played with Ethan Morrow. He was a pretty yeah. good looking kid back then. Like, I'd ima- yeah, I'd imagine yeah. this like blonde hair, chiseled jaw surfer dude comes in. I can only imagine some of the guys are like, who is this? And then he goes out on the ice and he's 
Why well, he's even more. Exactly, you know, six three or six four, and he had the the mullet haircut, the long mullet, and uh, yeah, the girls really took to him in a in a hurry at Niagara Falls. It didn't. He didn't have. Yeah, he didn't have any problems <laughs> that the, in that department for sure. Uh, but again, you know, Ethan was a great guy too. You know, he, my first year was his first year as well. You know, and uh, him coming in from Aurelia, he was uh, you know a, a small town kid too. You know, I mean, we didn't really know and. They said once he got on the ice, you're right. He was uh, electric. He was uh, hands down. He knew he was going to play in the NHL. And uh, like I said, an, an another great guy, like a great teammate to play with. Your first full year in the O, Jason, uh, you and the Niagara Falls Thunder went to the conference final versus the, and I mean, they were a massive team at the time, running their little dynasty up there in Sault Ste. Marie. But nonetheless, uh, that's who you run into in the third round. But what do you remember from that playoff run? I just remember being terrified of Chris Simon on the ice. <laughs> I remember and this is a great story. We were playing. Uh, he was in Ottawa and uh, Dave Babcock, or I think it was Dave, Bab our defenseman uh, was chirping at him and Chris Simon turned around and two hand him in the mouth and knocked all of his teeth out. And we, and myself and Dennis Max were yelling at Simon. Hey, you're lucky. You don't play us again. We're going to kill you and all this. stuff. we're going to fight you. So then I think it was like a week or two later, he got traded to Sault Ste. Marie in our division. <laughs> so, I remember coming to the rink and Maxie said, Dennis said to me, you know who got traded? I'm like, no, yeah, Chris Simon just got traded to Sault Ste. Marie. I'm like, oh, no. And we, I think we played him like that weekend. So we're going into Sault Ste. Marie up in, and up in the Sioux where the old barn and you got Teddy Nolan there, probably one of the best coaches ever coached too. Then you got Chris Simon, you got Brian Gowdy. You know, you got some, you know, Tony Yob up there. You had some big guys and you're going in there and I'm like, oh, God. And he's Chris Simon's got the long hair and he's, He's right, right out of slap shot. He looked like he's going to kill you. And I'm like, I remember him running around and I'm like, I'm not fighting him. And Dennis, we're not fighting him. Forget it. But yeah, it was, uh, like I said, we, we ran into a hot team. They had, you know, Ralph Intranubo and those guys there and uh, Colin Miller was there. And um, it was a good series. And like I said, it was a hard series. But like I said, probably the best two coaches that ever coached in the OHL with Teddy Nolan and, and George Burnett, for sure. Certainly up there. Uh, that final year for you, almost five penalty minutes a game. Were you fighting every game <laughs> pretty much you know i mean like uh, after my first shot i i had a, an agent by uh, gus Bedali, who was the same guy as uh wayne gretzky and all those guys my parents went and got him and they said if you want to you know get drafted then you know you got to put an edge and so i did i i started running around and uh i didn't win every fight but i you know if people wanted to fight then i'd fight and uh you know, George gave me a role on the, on the second line with dale junkin and todd wetzel and uh we had a shutdown role most of the time and, um, you know, one of my claims to fame is I shut down uh, Andrew Brunette on his point streak. Uh, George Brunette told me before the game that every time he's on the ice, you're going on the ice. And I'm like, with Andrew Brunette? He said, yeah, every every time. So it was in Niagara and uh, lucky enough, he didn't get a point. So I shut him down for uh, his, uh, it, I think it was a point streak or something. And uh, like I so said, we were putting in roles like that. But like I said, it was, uh, like I said, OHL was probably the one of the best times of, uh, of my life coming from Coburg for sure. I wonder if remember Burnett had like a 60 game point streak. I wonder if that was it. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. I stopped yeah. it. I'm the one that stopped it. Uh, that 60 year. something games. Yeah. And uh, he came in and I remember in the pre and we had a morning skate and George said, uh, you're going to shut down Andrew Burnett tonight. Every time mm -hmm. he steps on the ice, you're going, don't care if you're with Todd Simon, if you're with Tom Morris, wherever you're with, as soon as he's on the ice, you go and you stick with him. So he was, he was getting ticked off of me. He was slashing me and he was, he wasn't like, I was in his back pocket. I wasn't, even if he touched a puck, I was hitting him, cross-checking, whatever I could do, so he didn't get a point. Like I said, uh, fortunate enough, not, uh, short, uh, fortunate enough to, to shut him down off that uh, incredible streak he was on. 
you, you mentioned the name Gus Bedali. I wanted to ask about a little yep. further because obviously synonymous with many greats in the league. But how did you end up with that connection and with him as your agent? You know what? He came to a game when we were playing uh, Newmarket. And uh, after the game, uh, somebody said, Gus Bedali wanted him. Like, who the hell is Gus Bedali? Like, you know what I mean? I, I don't know who he is. You don't know who he is. He has Wayne Gress. He has this guy, this guy. I'm like, wow, okay. And my, my parents just happened to be at the game. So Gus uh, pulled us aside and talked to my dad and, uh, you know, said, hey, we'll work out the figures, but I want to represent your son. And my dad's like, for what? You know what I mean? Like, we didn't know anything, you know, like, why, why, why do you want to represent me? I have no idea. And like, so from that day on, he represented me and uh, um, I didn't get drafted, but I was fortunate enough to sign a, a contract, uh, like a pro contract with uh, Boston to try out uh, and played a couple games exhibition and then ended up uh, playing pro from there. Who do you remember from your time in Boston? Uh, well, biggest guy was I, who I still live. He lives 15 minutes from me, Joe Juno, here in Quebec City. Uh, Dave Reed was there. Uh, obviously, oh, yeah, Ray Bork, uh, Cam Neely. Uh, our goalies were uh, Vincent Riando and John Blue. John Casey was there. Uh, I remember doing fitness testing with John Casey, and he was uh, smoking darts on the bus going to the <laughs> going to the training facility. He was he had I think he had like five or six kids. He had like he just looked like he walked out of bed, and he was like, "I'm not doing any training." Like and like I said, he was smoking darts on the on the team bus going to the training. So it was a uh, it was pretty cool. But like I said, in training camp, obviously Cam Neely was a big fan of mine. I knew who he was, and uh, he was really great with the rookies. And uh, like I said, uh, Hines was there, um, Darren Banks, Mark Major. Uh, so it was uh, yeah, it was a pretty good time. I played uh, against the Hartford Whalers and the New York Islanders in a preseason game. That's pretty sweet. I remember Joey Juno. I was a huge Joe Juno fan, but the big long flow at the back, he was nasty well, back in the he day. He still has it. And like uh, my, <laughs> where my son goes to school here, it's a program, program called the PDHE, which is uh, Joe Juno's program. And it's all through Quebec City. And uh, Joey, he lives, I see him all the time. He's about 20 minutes from my house. And he comes on the ice and I go on the ice to help my son a little bit too. And uh, yeah, it's his program. So he's uh, he hasn't changed. He's got the long flow and uh, the goatee. It looks exactly the same as an age. That's awesome. Preseason exhibition or not playing NHL games versus the Hartford Whalers and New York Islanders. What were those experiences like for you as a kid from Coburg? Well, again, like I said, uh, we didn't play it in the big rinks. We, we played at Old Avon Farns in Connecticut against Hartford. And uh, yeah, I fought two times. I fought Howie Rosenblatt and uh, another guy there. And, uh, but I said, like, I, I got the Boston Bruin jersey on and my name on the back. And, and then uh, we opened up the uh, Knickerbocker Arena in Albany uh, against the Islanders. And Casper uh, Ritus was playing and, and things of that nature. And uh, like I said, coming from Cobra, that was, that was good enough for me. You know, I mean, I didn't think of, did I think I'd get out of, a junior, out of junior? No, I didn't. Um, and then going to Boston's camp and then, them tell me to go down the East coast league and play a little bit. And I ended up playing, you know, 15 years in the East coast league or 10 years and over a thousand games pro. So, you know, like I said, I, I exceeded my expectations of what I was planning to do. I didn't plan on making a living. Uh, I, for sure. I thought I was going to work in the factory with my mom at craft or, or my dad in, in, in Port Hope and that'd be the end of it. But like I said, uh, I was fortunate enough to play over a thousand games in a bunch of great places. And uh, yep. Someone was looking out for me for sure. You say over a thousand pro games and a lot of it in the coast. It's not easy on the body. It's not easy on the mind. Was it tough or was it something that you really enjoyed and you didn't mind? You know what? It's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. I loved it. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was a fan favorite and, you know, see my first year I had five, 500 and some minutes in penalties. And um, so I, I was, I was 
loving the lifestyle, but now I'm paying for it. Like there's a lot of things, uh, you know, we didn't know then that we, we know now about concussions and, and things of that nature. And, you know, back then, uh, you know, East coast, we were on a bus. So you play Friday night at home. And when I was in North Carolina, you bus all the way down to Florida, Florida for a Saturday game, then Sunday, but you're back home. So you're on the bus nine hours, get off, go to the hotel for maybe four or five hours, eat, play the game back on the bus. And it was nonstop. You know I mean? And like I said, back then, you know, we were going down to, to Fort Myers, Florida to play Erie, Pennsylvania to Mobile, Alabama. And it was all by bus. And uh, we didn't have sleeper buses back then. We had regular coach buses with uh, either a trailer on the back or your equipment underneath. And uh, it was, um, like I said, the reason why I did it is because I saw how hard my mom and dad worked at their factory jobs to make half of what I was making, doing something that was fun and people that were, you know, making us be rock stars. You know I mean? The towns we played in, we were the, the gods and we were eating for free and everything that came along with it. So when I came home in the summer, see my mom and dad working 40, 50 hours a week for what they were making and trying to, you know, survive like that. And I was thinking, I don't want that lifestyle. So that's what I continued to just uh, push myself to, to play every year. Cause in the coast, it was year to year contracts. There weren't three year deals. There weren't two year deals. It was one year, one year, one year. So I was, like I said, I was fortunate enough to, to be in a role where teams needed me. And uh, you know, like I said, played a thousand games is, is pretty remarkable. You mentioned those PIMs, and it's it's hard to not notice them when we look at the stats that you put up year over year. And I think it was Roanoke where you got pretty close uh, to 500, had 491 the one year, and then a few years later with Verdun, you, you eclipsed the 500 mark. I, I wonder if that was a goal of some sort by, by you to come in and say, I want to get 500 PIMs one year. You know what? It never was for PIMs for me. It was just, you know, I wanted to go out there and put a show on for the people and the fans. And, you know, that's how I knew that I was going to stay playing. You know what I mean? Like the fans love me. I had my jerseys everywhere. And like I said, I remember playing in Roanoke, Virginia. I couldn't go out. Like I would go to the mall and people would recognize me. And, I'm, and to me, like, again, coming from Coburg, like who cares who Jason Clark is? But you go down to the places I played, like Mobile, Alabama, like Mobile, I was best friends with Paul Bear from the WWE. Uh, I was with him all the time. He came to the games. I went to shows with him and we created a bond for two years that I was in mobile. And like I said, it was like just a relationship I had with him. Like, you know I mean? Just things that I experiences I incurred through, through my career. Like, I think that was probably one of the best ones in mobile that where I played there. And like I said, like Paul bear wanted to meet me because of who I was. And I'm like, I know who this guy is. Like this guy's bigger than life, like with the undertaker. And so, like I said, I told the story to Sean McMorrow there. Uh, the one practice that our general manager came down and uh, said, you know, we have a, a big WWE guy that wants to meet you. And they didn't tell me who it was. was like, Perfect. I'm a huge fan. So, you know, I was skating around doing warmups and stuff like that. Then all of a sudden I seen this huge figure appear from the, we had a big drape where we came out and he came out and was right against the glass. And there it was, was the Paul bear. And uh, he opened the door and I skated off. I didn't even practice that day. Jeff Powell said, just go talk with him. I went and had lunch with him. And from that day on, Paul and I, you know, uh, you know, he passed away numerous years ago, but I talked to him all the time. Like I went to shows with him. And like I said, he, he gave my family tickets to wrestling shows and just things like that. I think I'll take away from when all this is over. Like when, you know, all the hockey's said and done the things that I, I did, but that was probably one of my favorite things. You have a good Paul bear impression. I, you know, I don't. And everyone asked me that, but you know, he used to come in the room and do the starting lineup or uh, Jeff Pyle was a coach. And uh, sometimes if uh, we're winning and we had some good records, uh, they would say, you know, let Paul come in and do, and he'd come in and do the spooky voice and do all the stuff. And uh, yeah, he was uh, large in life. And he was, like I said, he was in, in his prime back in raw and all that stuff. And he was, uh, 
like I said, he came in the room and everyone was his friend. Like he uh, shows everywhere I went with, him. I went to new Orleans with him, uh, Pensacola, everything. And I still talk to his son to this day. So. I'm curious what life was like in Mobile, Alabama as a hockey player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went there from, uh, I believe Birmingham, Alabama, uh, or, or, or no, I got traded from uh, Roanoke to, to, to the uh, Birmingham and went to Mobile. But all I knew was uh, Mardi Gras was originated from there. So, you know, how could, you know, the fans be any good or what is it? So like I said, the first game there it was sold out. There was 9,000 people against Pensacola. And I mean, it was loud. It was incredible uh, for someone, you know, that you, you're right to think about hockey in Mobile, Alabama, like you're thinking, you know, it's football, it's high school football, it's whatever it is, but they love their hockey down there. They absolute uh, people. The ownership was great. Um, like I said, the, the rink was packed all the time. And again, we were treated like rock stars. You know I mean? It was, uh, it was a great time to be, be a, a player in, in the East Coast League at that time, for sure. You mentioned, Jason, uh, your parents and, and the blue-collar jobs that they had. You thought you'd end up working in the factory, too. And then what you, what do you end up doing is playing a 1,000 pro hockey games, making more money than they were making in a year, working in that factory where you thought you might end up. But I, and, and though you played the game in a blue-collar way, I wonder what they thought of what you, you were doing. Instead of going to work in the factory, you're out there skating around. Well, my mom was always, you know, whenever I got in a fight in the OHL, she would get up and go out of the arena. So wherever we play, like she would come to Kitchener, Guelph, wherever we are playing Peterborough, Oshawa. And as soon as I dropped the glove, she would get out of her seat and, and go have a cigarette or, or go outside. And they, they thought it was a strange, strange way. Because again, the knowledge of hockey for us in Coburg with my family was, you know, we didn't know the knowledge of it, what it was all about and entailing. Um, they thought it was pretty a strange way to make money. But then, you know, they saw that I enjoyed it. Like I would come home in the summertime from the States and, you know, be home for two or three months and then go back down and play. And then I started playing professional roller hockey as well in the summer times. Uh, so sometimes I wouldn't even come home. So I would just stay down in the States and play, you know, ice hockey, then roller hockey. Um, yeah, it was, uh, they thought it was a strange way to make a living, but, uh, you know, my dad loved it. My brother loved it. And uh, like I said, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a strange way too, but it was fun. Your mom must have spent a lot of time outside of the arena then. <laughs> she did, you know, and she, uh, she, got a, she got her big winter jacket on and, and things of that. And like I said, uh, yeah, it was, uh, my mom was my biggest fan. Like I said, uh, she was always yelling at me not to fight. And and well, I remember one uh, time I got in a fight in Peterborough and I forget who it was, but I had a great big shiner. And it was uh, right after the game, she saw me, she started crying. Okay, that's it. You're quitting. And George Burnett came over and talked to her. It's okay. It's only a black eye. Like my mom thought it was the worst thing ever. So um, first time she ever saw me with a black eye. So it's uh, it was fun. But like I said, she she came to most all the games she could around, especially around the Oshawa Peter Bowl when we came down there uh, to the play. So you mentioned Dennis Bonvi. That's a big yeah. name when it comes to you know tough guys around hockey. Is he the toughest guy you ever fought? I never fought Dennis Bonvi. Oh uh, no, he, he was in the other division, North Bay, and uh, um, you know I fought. Uh, I guess the biggest guy I ever fought was uh, Donald Brashear. Uh, in the in the league North American here in Quebec, I, I fought him at the when they were in the lockout. I fought him at the Coliseum Quebec, and there was fourteen thousand people there, and I, and I fought him, and uh, probably the hardest ever been hit by anyone. And uh, but like again, like it, it was something I wanted for my you know my legacy or whatever it may be of who I fought. You know what I mean? And like I said, uh, yeah, in, in our division, I guess the biggest guy I ever fought was Barry Potomsky. Uh, I fought Brian Gowdy. Uh, but Potomsky, I guess, was probably the biggest guy in London uh, to fight there. And then they had Eric Cairns in Detroit, but I never fought Eric Cairns. Um, 
probably too big and out of my weight class, uh, Eric Harris was. Um, but then again, you, you had Matt Johnson and Peterborough. So there were, like I said, there were some big, big names, but you're right. Bombi was probably the, him and uh, Matt Johnson had some uh, epic battles uh, during my time. And uh, like I said, those two were probably the biggest names. I watched that Brashear fight. It didn't look like he caught you clean though. Well, he caught me once in the side. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I had like a Fred Flintstone on the side of my head for a, a week or two. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, he hit me pretty good. Yeah. It's, uh, but like I said, he was so imposing like, and he was, you know, in the top five NHL heavyweights at that time. And, uh, you know, just when I grabbed him and you could just feel the strength difference when I was to what he was. And I was just like, you know what, just do what you got to do. And I'm doing what I've got to do. So let's, uh, you know, like I said, I think it went pretty well for me being a guy just playing in like pretty much a senior league, you know, fighting, a, you know, a top five guy in the NHL. What was your approach to fighting in hockey? Because I think a lot of people forget when we talk about it and some people get excited about it and some people clutch their pearls over it. But there's there's an art attached to this. Like Wendell Clark, for example, was a guy that went in and tried to get punches in really quick and then sort of hang on. What was your approach? You know what? Just to survive, you know, every, cause every fight is different. I, I wanted to, you know, my mindset was I didn't want to hurt the person, but I wanted to do my job. You know I mean? I didn't ever, I never wanted to hurt anybody. I wanted to make sure that my job was done that if they ran Ethan Morrow or Junkin or Wetzel, whoever it may be that they wouldn't do it again, or, you know, skate in front of the goalie, like, you know, how much the game has changed from when we played in the nineties to it is now like, you know, going to the Quebec Rampart game here, people, you know, they stop right in front of the net and there's nothing done. Well, back when we did, if you did that, you're getting a cross check for Manny Legacy, you're getting this and that. Um, so my mindset was just basically like just survive and, and make sure that I did my job. You know, I mean, there wasn't a, I wasn't a technical guy because I really didn't know how to fight. I, no one taught me and I was self-taught and watching on TV. And, and you're right. Wendell Clark was my biggest guy. I love Wendell Clark, you know, last name. Um, I wanted 17 in Niagara, but Todd Simon had it. So I ended up getting 24 with Bob Probert. So, you know I mean? Uh, th- th- those are my guys back then when I was playing was Wendell Clark and Bob Probert. Those are two pretty good guys to, to look up to. I think oh, yeah. um, you, you talked about how I, you mentioned Sean McMorrow. I'm assuming you were on his podcast. Yes, I was. Yes. Yeah. We had him on here. Did you play with him or against him at any point? I played against him in the Quebec senior league here. Uh, and like I said, he was just brought in to, to fight uh, on the yeah. weekends and, and things of that nature. And then, uh, I was doing boxing shows and I actually, that's when I first met Sean was moved a boxing show together in Quebec city. When you were in the Ontario hockey league uh, and, and you've touched on, I mean, that, that great series against the Sioux where you come up short in, in your first full year, Peterborough, et cetera. What was your favorite building or your least favorite building to play in on the road? Least favorite would have to be the Sioux for sure. I, I, I hated that. And I think the favorite one was uh, the Joe Lewis arena when we played CompuWare or the junior Red Wings at the time, uh, it was the old barn. And uh, I remember the first time we played there, we were stuck in a snowstorm. Uh, so we were late getting to the game. And uh, so we didn't have a chance to see anything. And Detroit was pl- uh, practicing the time we were supposed to be there. So I was all pumped to see Bob Probert and stuff like that. And uh, we got there just in time for the game and we passed in front of the locker room. And uh, we got to check in the locker room a little bit. And uh, like I said, they, they had a big crowd there too, because they had a bunch of uh, star players playing for, you know, Todd Harvey was playing there. Uh, Pat Peak was playing there at that time. And they had a big, uh, you know, following there as well. So I think that was probably my favorite rink to play was the Joe Lewis for sure. I'm jealous that you got to play in Joe Lewis. I'm a huge Red Wings fan. <laughs> my brother is too. He came to the game. It was uh, his claim to fame that he watched me play the Joe Lewis. And like I said, they're in our division. So we played them, I think, six times at the Joe Lewis. So it was pretty cool. You went over and played in Nottingham. What was it like over there? 
you know what uh again you know speaking with sean mcmorrow about that like it was a great experience like uh they had a brand new facility held uh 17 000 people right beside the nottingham forest soccer stadium so it's kind of like a a complex kind of deal just up the road a little bit and uh fans were crazy it was uh they were chanting all game it was like i said coming from the states uh playing hockey there i didn't think it would be that big of a difference but it was a lot tougher than i thought it was playing on the big ice surface and uh there was a lot of nhl tough guys like we had uh, Barry Potomsky, Doty Wood uh, on our team. And then, we, you know, we had Paul Cruz, uh, Paxson Schulte, a bunch of NHL tough guys playing over there. And it was uh, surprisingly really good hockey. It was uh, a, a great experience to go there. I'm, that's probably one of the, the things I'm glad I did. How did you know when it was time to hang them up? When I had trouble getting out of bed and, and, and having headaches uh, my with the concussions I had and uh, um, just a sheer um, – like I said, uh, I, I still have trouble today. I, I go to therapy for it with uh, my headaches and uh, um, aggravation and the things that go around with, with the concussions and uh, my back and my neck and, and things of that nature from the wear and tear, obviously from, you know, the buses, the planes and, you know, over many, many years of what I did. And uh, yeah, it's uh, like I said, I have two young kids now and uh, it's some days are struggles and some days aren't, you know, I mean, it depends on the day and uh they said I have a good supporting cast of my wife and my my kids understand what I went through and uh, what I'm going through. They, like I said, they've come to a couple of therapy sessions with me and uh, to see what it's all about and explain to them what I go through on a, a daily basis with, like I said, the headaches and, and the memory loss and, and the things of that nature. So it's, uh, they like said, I couldn't do it alone and I, I have a, a great supporting cast for sure. It's good to hear you're, you know, treating it and doing well, like hearing that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw a name. At you. I don't know if you'll remember him. Joe Hawley. Yeah, Peter Pete. Yeah, I, yeah. You, you you played with him at one point. I worked with Joe. I just was curious if you had any uh, memories of Joe Hawley. I, I really don't. I, I played with him a short time in Charlotte, uh, yeah. in my first in the coast, and then I got traded 10 games in. Uh, but I, I remember him clearly from being the Peter Pete. And yeah, he's a, he was a good guy for sure. But I don't really have any memories of him for sure. Speaking of good guys, I talked to a guy who you only played with for two months, but he said... He won't remember me, but I remember him as a great guy, a great teammate. Tell him that someone who only knew him for over two month period says it was a pleasure to play with him and call him all capitals, a great teammate. Was that something that you took pride in? I think so. I, I didn't want any enemies when I played, you know what I mean? Like uh, I didn't want on my team. I want to be a team guy. I want to be involved with everybody. You know, obviously there's some clicks with this and that, but uh, I kind of really didn't have enemies with anybody that I played with. You know what I mean? I, I wanted to be a team guy and know that, you know, if you needed something, I'd be there. And if, you know, on the ice, obviously they knew that. And uh, yeah, I took pride in that, that, uh, you know, I don't, you know, for sure some people don't like me and some people do, but, you know, I mean, I think the majority like me for what I did for them. And, and I am gracious for what I, you know, people did for me as well when I played in the own, like I said, it's, or even pro, um, you know, like, yeah, it, it's a great thing to hear. Like, you know, I take pride in that for sure. You played with, uh, in the Ontario Hockey League anyway, the the last team to be in Niagara Falls. They had a couple of kicks at it. And uh, since 96, the Thunder have been no longer in Niagara Falls, doesn't have junior hockey right now. Uh, does that make you sad? Do you think the market could with you know have another team at some point? I, I couldn't believe it, honestly, when I went down, down the States and heard that they're they're leaving. Like, because uh, when I was there, the fan base was so good. And, like, everybody wanted to play there. Like, like I said, it was a little arena. Uh, we were treated very well. Uh, my second year was Larry Marzen's. Uh, he was a coach, Larry Marzen, because George went to Cape Breton. And uh, Larry was a great guy, too. I mean, they had great coaching staffs. And uh, I was really surprised. I think that's one market today that could still, 
you know, down on Clifton Hill, right at the top of Clifton Hill, we played and, you know, you come out of the rink, the lights and everything was there. It was a, uh, like, like I said, I, I was pretty shocked when that, when the team moved or dis dissolved and for sure, I think that team would do good there for sure. You've mentioned the uh, LNAH that you played in, in uh, Quebec a while. <laughs> that league has a reputation that's crazy. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious towards the end of your career, after you've done the pro thing, why go to the LNAH? It was the money. Uh, yeah. the money they offered people was ridiculous. Like you, I, I was making good money in England and they pulled me away from England to come play there. Uh, you know, paying housing year round, uh, giving you, and I'm not going to say the money, but an insane amount of money for per game and giving you jobs and, and things of that nature. And that's why we went there. Like it's, I probably made more money in five years than I did probably my whole career in hockey in the East coast league. You know what I mean? So that's it was crazy. like, that's, well, that's the only reason I went there. It wasn't because of the hockey or whatever, but like I said, the, the money they're throwing around at people is just ridiculous. Listen, if you're a hockey player and somebody's going to pay you that kind of dough to play the game, there's every reason to say yes to it. Well, you know, they're, they're pulling guys out of the American League to come play there because they're making more money in the League North American. Like Brandon Sugden, you know, he was playing in, in Syracuse or, or I think Syracuse, and they gave more money to come to, to Laval. So, you I mean, that's, you know, and he's what, making probably 60, 70 grand cash playing in the League North American. So, you know I mean, it's. Yeah, like you get to the end of the career and you did all the things you needed to do. And like I said, uh, the money was there. And my first year in Verdun, we happened to win the championship. And uh, uh, they gave us great big gold rings, diamonds in the rings, like real professional rings, everything. And the owner paid for everyone to go down to the Dominican Republic for one week. Uh, everything paid for. Uh, we got to the, air, air, uh, the airport of Montreal. He gave everyone an envelope, $500. Here's your spending money for the week. Have fun. We went down there. It was we were treated like royalty. It was just like I said, the ownership down there was great. Like our guy uh, was Michelle Arondo, and he owned uh, all the ice cream businesses in Montreal. And uh, so he get anybody that wanted a job, you get a, you go on the back of the truck and work uh, work all summer long if you wanted to. But I chose route to I uh, was a doorman uh, down on Crescent Street in Montreal for for two years, and I enjoyed that stuff. So that's what I did. Okay, just to follow up on that, on the other end of the spectrum, and I don't want you to, you know, necessarily slam anybody, but what was the complete opposite of that experience with all of your stops through the pros? What what city were you playing in where you're like, oh, geez, like this place is held <laughs> together with like scotch tape and paper clips? You know what? Probably Anchorage, Alaska was up there. Oh, I yeah. Mean, they, I forgot about the Aces. Yeah. Yeah. I, I played there. Uh, I, th I think I was there for a month. I, I was in uh, actually playing in Texas, and I got a call. Uh, phone call from Walt Podubny uh, and he was coaching, he was coaching up there and uh, he says, Hey, do you want to come play in Anchorage, Alaska? And like, it's 105 degrees right now. I'm in uh, just outside of uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And again, he threw the money at me and I was on a plane that night and I got there. And like I said, I got there and there had to be 20 feet of snow. It was minus 50. And I was like, what am I doing here? Like, it was just, that was probably the only place where I thought, you know, fans were great. Everybody was great, but just, I think the whole surrounding was, it was a miserable time just because it was so cold you couldn't do anything and like i said you, you had to go outside it like it was minus 50 you couldn't do anything so it was like uh and it was only like i think it was like 10 minutes of uh daylight per day because we we're in the the daylight saving where it's dark all the time so it was pretty depressing yeah i thought faro was going to ask about walt padubney well I, well I got excited when i heard the name i mean that's a pretty good name to drop well walt <laughs> you know what i i knew obviously knew of him i was a huge leaf fan growing sure. up and obviously walt padubney and he said and he called me you know jason walt padubney i'm like walt padubney a guy from the leafs and he said yeah i play for the leafs i'm coaching and general manager for the anchor jaces in the west coast league do you want to come play i'm like no oh. and he said the number and i said yeah i'll be on a plane so they had a 
Yeah, I was on the plane at Dallas to right to Anchorage. So yeah, it was uh, pretty cool getting off the plane, and he was at the airport uh, to meet me. Had his long hair, and uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a good guy for sure. You mentioned you're from Coburg, um, obviously deep roots there. A uh, good friend of yours, uh, Brendan Karen, yep. went through some stuff, and you helped uh, his family out. Do you mind telling that story? Yeah, you know, growing up, I I was good friends with Brandon. I played minor hockey with him, and I would go to his house after games and he'd do the same thing with me and I became good friends and kind of went apart when I played junior and stuff like that and uh, didn't really connect with him a lot and uh, I was uh, actually at home here in Quebec City and my dad called me and said uh, remember Brandon Karen yeah, for sure I remember and he says well there's been a big tragedy with his kids we're not sure if one of them are dead or both of them are dead or, or something really bad has happened so I tried to find out as much as I could and uh I got a call uh, from my brother who knew one of the policemen and, and told me what happened. And uh, like I said, uh, yeah, it was a tragedy what happened to, uh, you know, uh, his kids. And like I said, his daughter is, uh, you know, going through uh, therapy now and she's coming around to, you know, walking again, going to school and hanging out with friends and, you know, obviously Cormac passing. And um, uh, I have a good friend with wingman sports that does a bunch of apparel and jerseys. And I, I just came up with, you know, everyone does t-shirts and, and things of that nature, but Cormac, I talked to a lot of people about Cormac and uh, everyone said he was just like me. He was a defenseman, uh, not the best skater, not the best shooter, loved his teammates, loved to go to the rink. And that was me when I was growing up and he wore my number 17. I wore 17 all the time and uh, Cormac was 17. So I just tried to think of something that, you know, we could always remember because, you know, a t-shirt will fade away. Someone will throw it away. And so I thought about, let's do a toque. You know, and I thought maybe we'd sell 50, 100 toques, whatever it may be. Um, but the the people that came out and bought toques, like uh, celebrities, I think we ended up selling over 500 toques uh, for Cormac and to raise money for the uh, for the uh, Sick Kids Hospital. And uh, like I said, uh, Brandon Karens, I, I met with him last summer. Uh, first time I'd seen him in a long time. And it was like I'd never missed a beat with him. Uh, his family is so wholesome and genuine. His dad um you know they couldn't thank me enough for what i did but it, like I, I told them it's i didn't do this for my recognition or anything i would hope that if something happened to my family that we would do the same that you know hockey is such uh, a tight community and like the with the um the Dem, uh, the bronco team there i was good friends with darcy hogan the coach and i had actually spoke to him that day before he got on the bus and we all know what happened with the the broncos that day and uh, I still had the uh, voice message on my phone and all this text message on the phone because Darcy was uh, a great guy and the tragedy that happened with them. And, uh, you know, I helped them with their T-shirts and stuff like that. But with Cormac, it was so close to home. And like I said, if it happened to my family or any family in the in the Northumberland region or any, you know, that it just I think it makes you feel because it's like Brandon said, he, he would go to the hospital and he would see these doctors and nurses wearing that too. So it just wasn't a Cobra thing. It was everywhere. We're like we. We had uh, hats in uh, in Spain, Italy, England, Florida, everywhere. It was a, a well-known thing, and that's what we want to do. And I'm working with uh, the grandpa right now to see what we can do about the uh, school bus situation. Uh, because uh, last summer, my son almost got hit by a, a car uh, in front of my house. He didn't stop for the bus. And if the the bus, uh, bus driver didn't honk the horn and my son wouldn't look up, he would have been hit by a car as well. And uh, so we're kind of putting some stuff together where we can go to the provinces to see what we can do to uh, make these kids safer when they, you know, going to the buses and, and getting to school and getting home from school. And I think it's a big uh, thing that I want to work with now with everyone 
um, is that we got to make sure that our kids are safe when they leave our door. You know what I mean? Obviously we know what happened with Cormac and his sister, you know, the kid didn't stop and, and, and hit both of them. And, uh, you know, we're lucky to have one of them still alive. And like I said, I think there's so much more that uh, the government and people in general can do to make these buses safer and everything safer for our kids going there for sure. Because like I said, I saw it with my own two eyes. Uh, and if that bus driver didn't hit that horn, my son would have been hit as well. Maybe not like what happened to Cormac, but he would have been hurt badly. And like I said, uh, I spoke to the, the the police. I spoke to everyone, and they're and they're all in agreement that something has to be done. And I know that uh, you know with Cormac, what happened? That I certainly want to make so certain that something gets done for sure. Well, you know, you were doing something right if you were able to sell toques in Florida and Spain. Also, that story about Darcy Hogan gave me chills. Oh yeah. my gosh! I was uh, I met Darcy through. Uh, I sent him a couple players, and uh, about two years before that, and we became great friends. We talked on the phone all the time. And uh, like I said, I have on my phone, I, I won't erase it. The, some of the things that he said were so touching and uh, like, I've never met the man in person. I talked to him like this on the phone and not through my iPhone and we connected. It was a, a bond that we had. And like I said, he called me the day of getting on the bus about a player. He says, listen, I'll give you a call after the game. And then uh, I saw on the news that there was a horrific uh, bus crash. And I received a call from one of the people from Humboldt and said that uh, Darcy had passed in, in the accident. And uh, like I said, again, we know what we you know with the, with the buses that we all drive on. And again, it's a, a big thing that I'm trying to spearhead with buses with everything. You know, what I mean, it's uh, such a dangerous as soon as we step on as a, a junior player or, or whatever uh, pro player, our hands are in the, the, the bus driver's uh, life. You know, what I mean, so there's so many things that we need to do to make these things uh, safer. Like I said, for sports, for for school, for everything, uh, school buses are a big thing for me now. Sticking with buses, but on a on a lighter note, you obviously rode the bus quite a bit yeah, <laughs> over yeah, your career. I, I lived on it, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you ever find a good way to sleep on a bus? No, there's no such no, thing. No, you know what? <laughs> back then it was so, uh, you tried to put your feet across and the guy sitting beside you would kick your feet. Then some of us got smart and put sleeping bags on the floor, but we'd get stuck in between the, we'd get stuck between the seats. So there was never really a, and I was never a guy that could sleep sitting up like i could never ever do that with a pillow the guys could do it but i could never do it so no there was never anything and like i said from junior all the way up there was nothing we could do it's funny because chris doesn't travel with me as much anymore so there's always a seat empty next to me the guys love it because they can get their feet across the aisle and they can have pope's seat which is fine but that sleeping on the floor still happens too and i'll never forget the time that I, I try not to make the trip to the back of the bus if I can help yeah. it, no matter how long the road is. But I remember walking back the one time and I stepped on a kid on the floor. I'm like, what are yeah. you doing down here? Oh, yeah. Some guys get the, the foam mattresses or, or the foam uh, rolls and put it out there. And uh, yeah, the, like I said, uh, coming back from the Sioux in North Bay or, or up in, uh, you know, even London from the falls, we had to get some sleep in because you had school the next day. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, you find a way. But like I said, it was tough for sure. Or he doesn't like to go to the back of the bus, Clarky, because he's scared they're going to do a hot box. You yeah. Know? He wants yeah, to yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's another issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's I know we've kept you. So it comes to this point of the podcast where Farzee normally makes a joke about me having a last question. I'm just curious with the way hockey treated you and you know gave you a life that you didn't think you had or were going to have. Are you encouraging your kids to play the game? I'm not. Uh, my son, uh, he's a soccer player. He plays right now, like for the school team. Um, he thought it was cool because dad played hockey and stuff like that. I've never shown him videos of me fighting. I don't want him to see it now. He's nine years old. 
kind he kind of knows because his buddies tell him you know what I did and stuff like that and people around town. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he he wants to play this year. But like I said, he he quit when he was six till now, and I never forced him. It was the same thing with me. My I quit when I was seven till ten. I didn't want to play hockey anymore. My dad put the stuff away. That was it. Uh, and then I played soccer and baseball and. Then my buddies started playing again, so I wanted to play with my buddies. Kind of the same route my my son is going now. Um, but I would never force him. Like I said, I'm thankful for what hockey gave me, but I'm also paying for it now with what I'm going through with my, you know, personal and, and body issues and things of that nature. And um, like I said, it's uh, an ongoing battle, but I'll never force my son to play. And if he wants to play at a level that he's comfortable playing at, then I'll support him. And if he wants to quit, I'll support him. But, like, I'll never – you know, give them that push where you got to do this. You got to have to do that because I was never raised like that. And I was never, it was never imposed on me to, to play like that. So like I said, he's going back to play this year. He'll be a, an Adam, I think uh, this year. And if he likes it, he likes it. If he doesn't, he's a, he's a great soccer player. So I'd rather him play soccer and uh, you know, not go through what I did. So at least then grandma can stay and watch the games. Yeah, for sure. And grandma definitely <laughs> likes that. Yeah. You know, it's uh <laughs> No, it's uh, like I said, it's uh, yeah, it's the, the things that with the hockey players go through back in the 90s and, you know, to go what through the now, I think that, you know, the you'll find a lot of players like myself that are going through some hard times. And like you said, it's it's important for us to speak about it and um, have the courage to come out and, and talk about things that you're going through. And like I said, it's probably been the hardest, some of the hardest things in my life. You know, I fought a lot of big, tough people. I fought a lot of things. Um, I was, uh, heavy into alcohol when I was playing in, 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 uh, the league North American to hide the pain and painkillers and things of that nature. And I think it's, uh, you know, like with Kerry Price, what he's done and, and things of that nature, people coming out and, you know, the best thing that I love is it's, it's okay not to be okay. And it's, it's such a cliche, but as long as people know that there's help out there and, and things of that nature, I think, and especially for junior kids nowadays in the OHL that have pressure playing in the OHL and, are scared to, you know, back when I played, you didn't want to say you're scared to be away from your mom and dad. You didn't want to be that guy to, to say that. But looking back on now, I wish sometimes I, I remember crying sometimes in my room and I, because I didn't want to be there, but I wanted to play. I missed my mom and dad and I miss my buddies and, and stuff like that, but I wanted to play the game. So I think if we realize where the hockey game is evolved to now or there evolved to, and know that, you know, for the junior kids, it's okay to speak out or to, to come out and, and say something's not right with you. And I think that's pretty important. And again, it's, I'm happy the OHL is doing stuff like that now. And uh, it's, I think that's probably the most important thing with the OHL now is that they can help these young kids if they have problems in their life. Because there's so many things that we see on the ice that we don't see off the ice. And it's, it's such a struggle for some of these kids because I know I went through it. And uh, being away from home, like I said, being a kid from Cobra, going to Niagara, big town, big city, big lights, you get lost in a lot of things and you forget what, you know, your life is about. And like I said, I've, I've seen some stories of what's gone on with some of the kids. And like I said, it's, it's a, a real problem in the OHL and even midget and stuff like that, where things are going on that people need to an avenue to talk. And I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that I would like to bring out is I wish I would have talked more when I, when I played. I'm so glad you're sharing that story and that message, Jason. It is incredibly important, and I appreciate so much your honesty on it and, and your willingness to deliver it. I'm going to do the, just the one more question here, but yeah, it's okay. tied into what Chris was just asking, yeah. what you've talked about, because you've been, you've been honest. You've been blunt about how you're feeling today and, and yeah. how, the way you, how the way you played the game contributed to that. And I've wondered, looking back now, would you do it differently? That's a, you know, I get that 
question all the time. My brother asks me every time I talk to my brother, he's, uh, you know what? I, I don't think I would because I, the life I lived was like a rock star. Like, you know I mean? It was coming from a small town. I didn't expect anything. And, you know, I worked for everything I had. Like I said, I, my mom and dad, my mom worked at Kraft General Foods in Coburg for 45 years. My dad worked at uh, uh, the plant in, in Port Oak for 35 years. Uh, we didn't have the big splashy houses, big cars, anything that we worked hard. And, and I saw that with my mom and dad. And like I said, I didn't expect anything of what I, I received. And like I said, someone was looking out for me. Um, I was fortunate enough to play the game that I loved and, and, and play a thousand games and play in Europe and play in the United States and play in the best junior league in the world in the OHL and have so many friends that I still talk to now. And like I said, do would I change some things? You know, I guess the, the best question would be uh, what, from what I know now to what I didn't know with the concussions and the, th the things that are going on, like maybe a little bit, but I don't think it would change my game that much because like I said, I love the role I played. Real quick. We've kept you too long, but uh, no, we appreciate, we appreciate you coming on. Just pub your, yeah. uh, your hockey program. You got going yeah. on right now. Well, um, I'm with Wingman Sports, uh, Lee Umansky in uh, Newmarket there. Uh, he sells custom gloves, uh, jerseys and stuff like that. And I uh, obviously play in the game for many years. I know a couple people and uh, I throw him his way. And uh, he's the one that did the Tukes for Cormac. And, uh, you know, he has a great business going there. And like I said, uh, people need stuff, you know, definitely look him up at Wingman Sports in Newmarket or, uh, you know, just uh, email me and I can put you in contact with him. But like I said, he's a great guy. He has a great business and uh, great quality stuff for sure. I'm so glad we were able to make this connection and that you were willing to come on the podcast. Thanks a million for doing this. Well, again, it's my pleasure. And like I said, I hope I bring awareness to some of the kids. Uh, you know, I know you're with Kitchener that ever need help. And like I said, if you want to throw my email out there for anyone that needs to talk about anything, I'm not a professional in any means, but I went through it. And uh, maybe if, you know, helping one person, uh, I would love to. But like I said, it's my pleasure to come with you guys. And uh, maybe one day we can meet for sure. What's your email, Jason, just for our audio listeners? Yeah, it's the J, J Clark 991 at gmail.com. So it's the letter J C L A R K E 991 at gmail.com. Like I said, uh, if you need to talk about anything and it goes out to any players in Kitchener, wherever it may be, I would love to talk about experiences and, you know, what if we can do anything uh, help moving forward for sure. He answers those emails, by the way, because our first email exchange came on a Friday night after a game in Kitchener when I was on a bus to Niagara Falls of all places. And yeah, it was like 11, 1130. We're going back and forth, setting this up. So uh, I, I answer my emails. Like I said, I, that's why my biggest pet peeve is someone sends me an email and I don't respond to the same thing. I don't like it. So for sure I'll respond to anything, but like I said, uh, I'm so happy on you and I'll be in Toronto this, uh, this summer in Niagara Falls. I'm going to take my uh, family. So maybe if I'm in the area, we'll pop in and uh, we'll have some lunch or something. Look forward awesome. to that. Thanks a million for doing this. No Thanks guys. Anytime. Okay. I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, why the hell is Farwell standing here by himself after the podcast with Jason Clark just came to an end? Well, as always with the OHL stories podcast, there is method to the madness. And in this particular case, the method to the madness is to introduce ever so briefly the other Jason Clark. It's a funny story. You heard us allude to it with the interview you just heard with Jason Clark of the Niagara Falls Thunder. But it seems though, as though when we were trying to, okay, I'll just own it. When I was trying to arrange that interview with Jason Clark of the Niagara Falls Thunder, I found a different Jason Clark who I thought was the Jason Clark that played for the Niagara Falls Thunder. Turns out 
that was not the case. This Jason Clark, who you're about to hear from, and is now coaching in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League in Acadie Bathurst. So, I mean, who, who wouldn't think that this is the same guy that went from Major Junior into uh, Tier 2 with Carleton Place Canadians and owned the team and, and had tremendous success with the team and then graduated on from there and moved on into the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. It all seemed to be adding up as you followed the trajectory of a typical hockey career. But no, it was a completely different Jason Clark. But this Jason Clark, who you are about to hear from, not only said this sort of thing, and we'll get into it at the beginning of the conversation, this sort of thing has happened before, just like the other Jason Clark just said, but this is like sitting in on a coach's clinic. So this Jason Clark did not play for the Niagara Falls Thunder. In fact, he didn't play at all in the Ontario Hockey League, played a little bit for the Kingston Voyagers and others, but then moved on to coaching and managing and is now coaching in Major Junior in the Quebec League. Sit back, have a little chuckle at my expense, and enjoy this virtual coach's clinic with the other Jason Clark. I feel like I have to start, Jason, with kind of how you and I started, which was by email. And when we got a few emails in, I realized that I was not talking to the Jason Clark I originally thought I was talking to. And you you took it like the great sport that you are and said it's not the first time that's happened to you in your hockey career. No, it's not, not the first time. So there's uh, lots of Jason Clarks out there that have played hockey with the E, without the E. But uh, I have the E. So that uh, that means I paid my taxes. Uh, my family paid their taxes back in uh, in uh, in England, and in at least I've got good. At least my family's got good credit, apparently. <laughs> that is hilarious. Now, when I look back on your career, it wasn't long from the end of playing to the beginning of coaching, and and I wondered if that was always a, a part of your plan in the game. I mean, I always really enjoyed the uh, the academic part of, uh, of hockey all the time and, and the interactions with the coaching staff. Um, I mean, uh, I always thought that I had a pretty good – I had a, obviously had a lot better mind uh, than I did uh, for than, than playing. But uh, so I always I always knew that I would uh, I would always uh, get into coaching. I just I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the like I said the academic part. I really enjoyed the fact that. Um, you know that that you know some of the coaches that I played for in my in in my time had a had a big impact on, on who I am as a person and you know and and I'm but always been thankful for that um, you know so it's kind of something that I I thought that it was kind of my time and my turn to kind of give back to uh, give back to the uh, to the guys that are playing at the, at the junior level so it's uh, it's a great age obviously you know you're kids and. You know, there uh, you can have a huge impact on 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 them as as people and uh, and as players at that specific time in their age. It's a very influential influential time time of their life. And and uh, you know, like I said, I had some really good coaches that helped me along, and I thought it'd be great to to be able to give back as well. So speaking of that academic side of the game, I'm I'm quite fascinated by it. I never played at at any high level at all. I, I broadcast in major junior now, and that's the extent of it. But you were 30 years ago when you were playing the game. Obviously, you've had to evolve even that academic side of things to make it applicable to the modern hockey player. How do you do that? What's the evolution been like for you? Well, I think the one thing is, is this, uh, you, you, there's, no, uh, there's no university or high school or college for hockey, right? So you just got to be able to have a little bit of initiative 
and um, you know, and self-educate and, and have a good circle of people and, and uh, you know, make sure that, uh, that you're always, you know, staying in time in, in the times with things. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, being able to, being able to get a good circle of, uh, of hockey knowledge from, from people that you've met along the way, um, you know, it has been a huge key to my success, but, you know, leaning on uh, going to coaches clinics, you know, the NHL draft, they've always got uh, coaches clinics there. You mean, you mean you're always on online with the uh, NHL coaches mentor uh, that they've done over the last two years during COVID. Um, you mean going to the Roger Nielsen's uh, coaching clinics and the coaches site. And, you know, I think that's uh, the big thing that's uh, allowed me to kind of stay with the times and, Obviously, watching hockey as well too. You mean uh, my wife doesn't uh, doesn't really get uh, me watching so much hockey at home, but uh, it takes me. Uh, you know, it takes a regular person. You know, they enjoy watching the game, but I watch it more as uh, as trying to critique and and stopping and and video and rewinding and and just trying to you know catch little plays that they're that they're using. And it's just about uh, just about always trying to get better every day. And I think that the Obviously, there's lots of ways of doing that with the show. Uh, there's Instat. There's all different types of uh, avenues for, for coaches like myself to continue to evolve and, and continue to get better and, and self-educate themselves. When you look at coaches in the pro ranks today, Jason, who stands out to you as someone whose systems you might admire? You know, there's, lots of diff- there's lots of different coaches. I think uh, the one thing with coaching is that I think you have to kind of be who you are you got to be yourself so i i i like to kind of steal ideas from different uh you know from different from different coaches i mean there's there's so many good coaches out there right now you mean you take a look at uh you know rod brindamore you take a look at uh, sheldon keith you take a look at andre burnett what he's doing in florida john cooper there's just so many different things that you can you can pull uh you know from from every coach and kind of add them to your your toolbox right so I think the great thing about uh, about watching lots of hockey and, and being involved all the time is that you're able to kind of steal ideas from everybody and and kind of bring them into your into your core mentality, culture of your, the team you're coaching. I know that you're uh, in part of a uh, embarking on a new chapter here in, in the queue right now, but we can't have a conversation with Jason Clark without talking about the Carlton Place Canadians owner general manager coach and and what that like the tremendous run of success you had there to what do you attribute that incredible success with the Carlton Place Canadians well first and foremost it goes to obviously my family being uh being able to raise um my kids and 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 in my hometown um and being able to have the support from the community I mean without without the volunteers that we had without the sponsors um you know uh financially supporting helping financially support the team um, I would not be where I am today. I mean, family and, and, and friends and sponsors and our fan base have been just so, so important to, to the culture and current place that we created. It was like one big family. And then obviously my staff and, and the volunteers that we had in current place, we were together for 13 years. We started the franchise. We had the same volunteers, the same coaching staff, same everybody. Nothing changed the whole time because we really enjoyed each other's time. Um, I think we were obviously all on the same page when it came to, you know, the, the culture that we wanted to create, you know, how we wanted to be able to help the kids grow as people and as players. And, you know, we all kind of had the same values and morals all set in the, in the right place. And, 
without the surrounding people that, uh, that I had with me, I would never be where I am today. That's for sure. You kind of touched on it twice now already, growing as people and as players. Do you see those two elements as requirements at this level of hockey that you're going to grow not just the athlete, but the human too? I think it's really important to me is that if you're living your life the right way away from the rink, it's all be um, focused and doing things the right way when you get to the rink. So what I mean by that is just you know, eating right, sleeping right, going to school, being a, being a good teammate, being a good brother, being a good, uh, you know, like with having a good relationship. The big thing is that if you just continue to do things the right way all the time, when you get to the rink, it's really easy to be able to concentrate on getting better at something that you really enjoy. But, you know, anytime that you're having to look over your shoulder all the time and, and you're not being able, you know, you know, you're not doing things the right way and, you, and you're cutting corners, you know, in, in your regular life, then the same thing happens in, 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 in the game of hockey to me. And, and uh, all those things translate and correlate together. You mean, if you're doing things the right way away from the rink, then it makes it a lot easier to do things right, the right way at the rink. And, you know, I think again, like, you know, we've talked about, you know, the age group from 16 to 20, you know, it's a very influential, like you can have a big influential part um, of their growth as people. And, you know, honestly, we, we spend more coaches, we spend more time, uh, with the kids than they do with their own parents from their career from 16 to 20. So, I mean, we're with them for eight or nine months of the of the year. And, you know, their parents, season only with their parents and uh, and family for three or four months of the year. So it's really important that, you know, we create um, a stable environment. Ability, but you mean it's on the, it's on the players as well too, but you've got to be able to create that environment in order for them to, and to order to understand that, you know, the way they do things away from the rink is going to reflect how they do things at the rink. So, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street. You mean every relationship's got to be a two-way street and anytime it becomes a one-way street, then that's when things kind of break down. So I think that's, what's really important for, for a hockey player is uh, just being able to do things the right way at the rink and, and obviously away from the rink. When you look back at your years as a player in the early 90s, Smiths Falls, uh, Kingston, Ajax, were you the kind of player that, that you're talking about wanting to have today, that you're coaching and teaching today away from the rink? Did that evolve in you as a player? What was Jason Clark, the hockey player, like? Well, I was the exact opposite. That's, what <laughs> I, that, that's, why, that's why I'm trying to, uh, to show them that, uh, you know, if you don't do things the right way, you know, I mean, you're uh, you're going to be old and decrepit like I am at 40 years. I have uh, an NHL career or uh, or pro career to talk about. So, you I mean, I uh, I I was a late bloomer in hockey, and I was a late bloomer in life. And and thank God that I met my beautiful wife, and she uh, she didn't she didn't uh, she, I think I think she did more of babysitting for me where the for, for the first five years helped me grow as a person than uh, than being married to somebody. So, I mean, I just I just try and take all my my learning experiences in life and, and just trying to relate it to the players and saying, Hey, if, if this is the way you do things, this is what could happen. And this is the way you do things the right way. This is what could happen. So I think, you know, having the, the life experiences that I've had, I mean, I've, uh, I've uh, always done things kind of the hard way in my life. So, um, you know, things have always kind of turned out for me, but I've just, I'm, I'm a late bloomer in, in life and, and, and as a hockey player. So I think just taking the life lessons that I have and, and relate them to the players and, you just, you know, just like raising your own kids. I mean, you just don't want to see your kids make the same mistakes as you did. And and I'm just trying to relate that message to, to the players that I'm coaching, you know, is saying, hey, look at if you do things the right way, this 
right? And if you do things the wrong way, this is definitely what's going to happen. So I think it's always nice hearing it from somebody else other than, you know, other than your parents, right? So I think it's, I think that's what's most important. So was there a, was there a light bulb moment for you, Jason, anywhere along the path or what sorts of life experiences are you drawing on to pass on to the players? I think, uh, you know, there was a light bulb experience for me with uh, Mr. Bob, uh, Bob McLaren when I was playing in, uh, in St. Catharines and I went to Brock University and, and uh, was let go for, for some, some bad off ice issues. And, and uh, you know, Bob kind of got a hold of me as a, as a 20 year old and said, Hey, you want to what you mean you can continue to live your life this way and and always have chaos in your life and blame everybody else or you can get up in the up early in the morning and brush your teeth and look at yourself in the mirror and and think good things and, and have positive energy and and feel good about yourself and I think that was uh you know was a was a turning moment in my life and it was in uh in a parking lot uh at Barack University and in and um, he, he totally changed, uh, totally changed my life. I mean, it would have been nice to have him at 16 years old rather than uh, rather than 20. But, uh, you know, things happen for a reason. And I'm just trying to use those experiences uh, in, in, in coaching and in trying to uh, make sure that uh, the players that I'm with that, you know, understand that, hey, I didn't do things the right way for a lot of years of my life. And and uh, there was a there was a light bulb moment for me. And. You know, I'm just trying to be that light bulb moment for all the players that uh, that I'm playing for. So uh, that are playing for me. So it's uh, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I've really really enjoyed my uh, my coaching career um, so far. It's uh, it has its up and downs, but you want to want the positives certainly outweigh the negatives every day. And and uh, I just really really enjoy working with this age group. Are you sure about ups and downs? Because I I looked at the records, Clarky. It doesn't look like there have been many downs in your. <laughs> coaching career success seems to find its way to you. Yeah. Yeah. But you mean, you know, winning, winning is one thing uh, for, you know, for us and, and we did a lot of winning, but I think one of the things is that we, we felt very, very obliged uh, as, as a, as an organization is making sure the players were, you know, getting a good education and, and we were doing the right things in order to move kids on to division one. And I mean, there's uh there were some tough days on, you know, maybe not getting the player the, the right deal and that, that we what we thought he could get or, you know, maybe, you know, some players leaving our organization that maybe, you know, underachieved, uh, you know, that we thought could be a little bit better. But I mean, uh, it's it, it is, you know, it, it, it I think all things happen for a reason in life. You I mean, there's a, there's a plan for everybody and you just got to get up every single day and, you know, and work through it and, and, and put a good effort, put it in a good effort uh, in life every day. And if you do that, then, you know, good things will happen to good people. So you're going to have your ups and you're going to have your downs. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been a great way to, uh, to make a living, to be honest with you. I feel very, very fortunate, uh, very lucky to do what I do and continue to, to work hard. So my luck continues of uh, being able to do what I do for, for a living. So I really enjoy it. They say luck is the residue of hard work. That's, that's what they say. I mean, <laughs> I'm not the, uh, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. So I gotta, I gotta work. I gotta work twice as hard as everybody else. That's for sure. I know that and understand that. That's probably one of my best characteristics of, uh, as a person is my work ethic. And uh, like my wife says, probably one of my worst uh, characteristics is or. There's one of my worst is, uh, is my wonderful patience that I have. So I'm always, uh, I'm always reminded of that. So it's something that, uh, 
I continue to work on every day. I'm 48 years old and I'm still working on it. I'm sure she'll tell me till I'm 68. (laughs) I I, I want to go back half a step to uh, Bob McLaren and forgive me because I I didn't know him well. Is he still with us? Absolutely. Bob is, uh, Bob's a retired, uh, retired firefighter and, uh, in St. Catharines and uh, he was a huge integral part to the uh, St. Catharines uh, Junior B Falcons for, for many, many years. And uh, that's just uh, was a very, very important uh, time in my life as a, as a 20 year old playing in that organization and being able to play for Bob. Um, it was, uh, it was a great experience. And to this day um, we st- we're still in contact and um, our second lap, Alton place. I had him come in as a, as a special guest and uh, present a couple of awards uh, to our players and kind of told them my story of, you know, how Bob changed my life. And uh, we're still, uh, still very close to this day. It's great to hear. And, and then back to Carlton place, you talk about the 13 special years there, obviously hometown, all that success. I can only imagine how difficult it must've been to make the decision that you did and take the leap that you did moving on to major junior and joining coaching staffs in the QMJHL. How, how difficult was that decision for you and the family? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it was, it wasn't an easy decision, but um, you know, I had, I had opportunities uh, through about four or five years into, into owning the team uh, to move. You know, I thought it was really important that, uh, that I wasn't uh, a part-time dad and I wanted to stay at home and, and, uh, you know, my wife and I were all on board in that. And, you know, we discussed that once, uh, once the boys were, were, uh, were all gone and, and starting their own lives and, and doing their own things. And, you know, all three of our children are, are doing very well. My daughter works for national defense and my middle boy, Nicholas is in the military. And my youngest guy is, uh, is a carpenter now and, and working full time. So it was just time for us to have a new chapter and for me to be able to concentrate on getting the next level of, I've always wanted to try and coach at the highest level. And, you know, I've had the support of uh, my community in Carlton Place in order for us to have the franchise we've had. But, you know, more importantly, I've had the support of uh, support of all three of my kids and, and my wife, which is, you know, more important than anything else. And and uh, they're they're uh, really happy that I'm uh, that I'm following my dream of uh, trying to coach at the highest level. And I couldn't be I couldn't be more grateful. I do obviously want to talk about uh, being with uh, Acadie Bathurst right now, but you kind of read my mind a little bit. So I'm going to jump in the timeline, so to speak. I got the impression from reading up on you a little bit that that highest level being perhaps the National Hockey League is, is where you would like to. I know you're focused on the job now and you're doing a great job, but ultimately I get the sense that's where you'd like to end up. Um, you want to what it's for me, it's it's like it's just a higher level. You I mean, I, I always wanted to get to the highest level and, and from major junior or from tier two junior A it's major junior. And I think for me now, it's just trying to get better. And I think, uh, you know, myself being able to work with Sly Couture, who's got 20 years experience, he's won, uh, you know, multiple, uh, more, uh, Memorial cups and championships and, and being able to work with him every day, I, I'm just continuing to get better. I mean, um, you know, as a, as a coach and, and growing as a person. And I think that's kind of what my focus is, is just trying to get better every day. I mean, um, I'm certainly not perfect at all and, and, and let my players know that. The only thing I ask my players is to make sure they don't tell my wife that. That's all. So I want to be able to make sure that, uh, you know, and, and that we just have to have a good relationship. And I think if I, 
And I think if our, our team continues to have a, a really good relationship and it's a two-way street between the coaching staff and the players, then, you know, the players are going to continue to grow. But, you know, I'm also going to be able to continue to grow as a coach. And I still got lots, uh, lots to learn. Um, you know, I'm only uh, about 33, 34 games into uh, into my major junior career. And and um, it's it's been going well so far. But we got a great coaching staff. And Let's let's face it. You mean good players make uh, coaches look good, and we've got uh, we got a lot of really good players in our team. So my job has been uh, has been is I wouldn't say it's been easy, but it's it's been a it's been a good situation for me to walk into uh, for my first uh, for my first coaching gig. How's your French? Was there any challenge with the language barrier? There was a, there was a little bit of a challenge with the language barrier, but uh, I've been doing my my due diligence. I do five to ten minutes of. Uh, uh, Google worked there on Duolingo and uh, I can get to the restaurants and order some food and still not comfortable having a full conversation yet, but at least I'll never go starving. That's for sure. <laughs> I had the, uh, the opposite conversation with Andre Turigny a couple of years ago when he came into the Ontario Hockey League with Ottawa. It was his English that needed help. And he talked about it early in his career as well, how the French players had to help him learn English as, uh, as a coach. Well, did I lose you there? Are you still with me? Yeah. So what's it? Yeah. Okay, I good. Yeah. Wanted... Yeah. Good. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, I, I, I wish my, uh, I wish my French was as good as Andre's English. That's for sure. So um, if anyone, uh, if anyone's ever uh, been able to the pleasure to meet Andre is just a fantastic guy and, and uh, that's one thing he's really worked on is English. I mean, uh, we had breakfast uh, a couple times in the summertime before uh, before he took off to uh, to Phoenix, and uh, his English is just unbelievable. And and what a what an energetic uh, energetic guy, and just a nice guy to be able to talk to and talk hockey, and and uh, you know, and, and and get knowledge from and, and get some ideas from. And you know, I've really uh, really been able to implement some of the things that him and I have talked to just just on a daily basis schedule and how they communicate as a coaching staff and, and schedules and everything else. I mean, 67s were, uh, you know, a pillar in the, in the, in the OHL that the, the three years he was there and, you know, why not, uh, why not, you know, steal ideas from, um, from a first class organization. So I brought a lot of, uh, a lot of those, uh, you know, little small things of scheduling and, and, and some culture ideas from, uh, from uh, James and from, and from Andre and if, kind of brought it into uh, brought it into Bathurst here. When you you mentioned the Memorial Cup earlier, I couldn't help but think that obviously with the cup being hosted in the queue in St. John's this year, uh, St. John, pardon me, uh, there's got to be a little bit of excitement around the fact that there will be a second entry from the queue. What's the buzz like as the regular season's coming to an end? I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of really good teams in this league. I mean, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's... Uh, it's a battle every day to be able just to get two points in this league and the schedule, it's been really tough. And, and the COVID schedule is really kind of caught up to a lot of the teams in our league, you know, with injuries and sickness and everything else. I mean, there's just so many good teams in this league. You I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Um, you know, playoffs are, are a whole different, uh, are a whole different animal. So we've always talked about it with us. You I mean, it's, uh, you know, the regular season is an audition for, uh, you know, for the big Broadway play. So, you mean, uh, our audition's going well, but we still got a lot of things that we need to be able to make sure that we nip in the bud in order for us to be uh, ready for, you know, for the big play. So I think that's uh, what, we're, what we're focused on. And, 
And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a day-to-day process that, uh, that we're really concentrating on right now. How do you like the travel? I know that here in Kitchener, we get uh, spoiled quite a bit. We talk about our ooh, big, long road trips up to Sault Ste. Marie, which you only have to do twice a year. It's pretty easy, certainly to uh, other leagues, the West and the Q. How do you like it out there? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting. My, uh, my first an assistant coach of Schwenigan was, uh, was an overnight uh, 16-hour bus ride uh, out to uh, out to uh, to Cape Breton so that was interesting and then uh or second my uh last road trip was a 19-hour bus ride home in a snowstorm from Valdor so it's uh it's a little bit different than the uh the the, the big long two-hour uh, bus trips uh in the in the CCHL but you want to want it's all a part of the business you mean uh I get you get a lot done actually to be honest so you get a lot of video done um you get to catch up with a lot of people um, you know, that you haven't talked to. And I, I use my time wisely when we're, when we're doing those trips. You I mean, just being able to catch up with, uh, with hockey guys that you might not be able to, to talk to on a regular basis and, you know, just, uh, just staying in touch with everybody. I think it's uh, really important. Networking is really important in, uh, in this small hockey community. And, and uh, that's something that I kind of, on those road trips, are using my time wisely. That's for sure. You've been a part of this game now, Jason, for three decades or so. How do you feel about the state of our game generally today compared to perhaps where it was when you were playing? You mean the skill level is just, is, is off the charts. You mean the, the stuff that these kids can do nowadays is just, it just blows my mind to be honest with you. It just, you kind of sit back sometimes the coaching staff and I look at each other and the bench just going like, did he just do that? Or like, like, are you serious? Like that just happened. Right. I mean, I, I think the speed, I think the skill is just unbelievable. The kids are in such good shape as well, too. And, you know, they really take care of their bodies and, and nutrition and their workouts are in much better shape than uh, than when I played, that's for sure. But, I mean, I'd like to see the game a little bit more physical at times. I mean, I know it, uh, the game, you know, ramps up a little bit in the playoffs, but same thing in the NHL. I mean, I like to see the game be a little bit more physical, but the skill level to me is just uh, is just unbelievable you find yourself at this point of the season still chasing down first place in the division. Is that sort of the, the micro goal before whatever might happen down the road into the, into the postseason and perhaps even a Memorial cup? I think the big thing for us is that we're just, we're just going on a daily process right now. It's trying to get better every day and, and trying to, and trying to make sure that guys are, are, are staying healthy and, you know, we're giving them time off when they need time off. We're doing a lot of yoga uh, right now and, and just doing a lot of uh, a lot of video. You I mean, you don't never want to get too far ahead of yourself. We just need to continue to know and understand that there's a process, you know, during our audition here during the regular season and that we just need to understand that we're that we're getting that one or two percent better every day. You know, other teams are resting and we need to be getting better on those ta- on those days off. So I think that's kind of what our focus is right now. Yoga. And video, two things that I'm thinking were not too much a part of your games or your times when you were playing the game. No, no, <laughs> there was uh, there was zero yoga back uh, back when I played. That's for sure. We were lucky to even get a, we were lucky to even get a stretch in. We just uh, show up for warm up, and that would be it. So. That part of the game and the evolution there absolutely blows my mind. When I see even just you talked about nutrition earlier and how fit these guys all are, but when I watch them now, even away from the games and everything that goes into the process of getting ready for a game and all the video work and everything else, I'm, I'm absolutely blown away. It's, it's almost a full-time job. It really is. Even at this level. 
Oh, it is. I mean, these kids are, you know, for, you know, for instance, our schedule starts at 7.30, uh, 7.30 in the morning and we do video at uh, 7.45 every day. Could be five minutes, could be 10 minutes. Uh, you know, we practice for an hour. Uh, and then we've got a, we've got a full-time uh, teaching staff uh, right at the rink. So we've got our own classroom. So we've got three full-time teachers that come in and, um, and do all the teaching for our guys. And then we're back on the ice for individual skills. And, in, uh, in, um, I mean, during the, uh, during obviously the busy times, uh, you know, we're not doing two a days, but you know, when the first time I arrived here in, in November to, to all the way to December, we were doing two a days, getting individual skills in and, and, um, you know, and practices and workouts. So it's a really, really busy day for those guys. But you I mean, if they want to be able to play at the next level, this is something that they've got to, they've got to do. They got to put the time in and, and also too is, is, you know, time management skills. You mean, you got to be able to, to manage your time. It's the biggest, uh, biggest thing that these kids are going to learn from the time they're 16 to 20 is time management skills. And, you know, if you don't have good time management skills, by the time you're done playing major junior hockey, well, there's something wrong with you. That's for sure. So you mean better prepare and for CIS and for schooling and everything else and time management skills, the biggest uh, thing they're going to learn when they're here. Well, I got to tell you, it's been, uh, it's been a real treat for me to have the opportunity to pick the brain of a coach that's been so successful for so many years. And you were a great sport in the uh, Jason Clark mix-up that allowed this to happen. So <laughs> thanks a million for joining me. And I hope we can keep in touch and have more chats down the road. Well, I, pre I really, uh, I really appreciate you having me on the uh, on the broadcast, and uh, I really enjoyed myself here. And uh, just want to wish you uh, best of luck going down, and, and I appreciate you having me on. I really enjoyed myself. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.